world of tonight's feature is a different time, a different place. A tired city of sun-beaten streets and cold-rolled Bethlehem steel, held together with hot rivets and icy stairs. Any bum knows the score, and everyone's playing the angles. As a writer, Robert Rawson spent a lot of time on underworld plots and collected a large menagerie of pulpy characters. Prisoners, murderers, racketeers, burlesque dancers, crooked politicians, hired muscle, freedom fighters, gamblers, and the criminally insane. At the heart of his work, one movie became his personal favorite, the product of a lived-in production, a sought-after script, fantastic performances, and a personal vendetta. I am, of course, speaking about the occasionally overlooked, frequently underrated classic 1961's The Hustler. Yes. I'm excited. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Moving on. But first, if you haven't already, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing, a five-star review does help us out quite a bit. Additionally, you can always leave us a voicemail on solid6.net slash voicemail or simply click the microphone button in the corner of the screen. You can email us at podcast at solid6.net. We love hearing from you, whether it's episodes new or old. We have a review from, we're going to cut this out, but you sent a review. No, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Is it legal? Is it legal for one of the co-hosts to Listen, we had, no, we had, we had like our first four-star review and I was like, I want to get the numbers back (laughs) up. Were you aware of this? Did you seriously do that? (laughs) Yes. Gaming the system? I'm not personally connected to the iTunes through the... I think... I don't know, like, because Brady's uploading if he's... I don't know. Maybe I game this... Maybe I hustled the system. Maybe you sold your soul to the devil. Is it wrong that you would want to, like, review your own shit? It's not wrong, but Josh, you be the judge as to what is right or wrong (laughs) about this review. So... Let's let's hear it. um, One Allison TD... User says, Who could that be? <laughs> five stars. Summary is, Well, of course. And the review says, Well, of course, I just love the heck out of the show. That Allison is a hoot and a half. <laughs> <laughs> is that it? Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Keep it. Thank you. Thank you. Mostly just because. Thank of you, the, Allison uh, TD. We really yeah. appreciate you. Right. Whoever you are, wherever you are. <laughs> Just know. You know what? I think more podcasts uh, should be honest about that, of like creating ghost accounts, oh, likes, really? things like I that. I just thought a ghost know? account is my personal account. I didn't create... Okay, listen. There's no backhanded like pushing of the numbers here. We all see what our friends do with their podcast by pushing their shit constantly. We advertise too. Why not send our own review into our own show? I think the show's fabulous. I love the female host. That's, you know, um, she's so clever. <laughs> you know, when you're right, you're right. And I, just, I don't think there's any sidestepping. I, I had previously uh, written in a review that I don't think uh, iTunes allowed. So I, I didn't oh. begin to, because I, I had basically said that Allison's sultry tones make me laugh. <laughs> 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 it was, you're just it like was, workshopping material yeah. for like, iTunes racist. <laughs> It never showed up on our um, reviews. <laughs> the thing is, is that I totally support this behavior, but I have to publicly say I don't support it because this is a slippery slope where I'm personally devious enough that by you doing this, the floodgates are open where I'm going to go like rent a clickbait farm out of India where it's just like 5,000 people who give us five-star reviews out of some 
data center or call center. How much do you think that would cost? Yeah, really. What are we talking about here? <laughs> <laughs> well, if we start our Patreon, no. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I, we'll keep it up. That's fine. That you you made a good can, justification. I mean, listen, it's not a shadow account. Allison TD sounds like a rock star. I'm really into this chick. So, Definitely. Yeah, I think it's fine. Well, I agree with the review. So it's been uh, a little bit since we last recorded, Mikey and Nikki. Mm-hmm. How have you guys been? Good. Brady. Oh. Or no. no. Anyone? Say that. <laughs> just read. Just say that. We've podcasted before. We <laughs> have we. <laughs> okay, I'm How? going. Hi. We're not awkward. <laughs> it's, it's fine. We mi- we miss we miss one we time on one our normal week. schedule and it's impossible. Yeah, and it's weird because I podcasted since we Are you did podcasting our show. without us? Sometimes. Oh my god. W- at least one time. Maybe more in the future. So yeah, I was on uh, Mustachioed Podcastio, hmm. which is our friend Daniel's uh, podcast. He does a show that is covering movies with men with mustaches. I guess I shouldn't be presumptuous that it's men, people with mustaches. I have a mustache. <laughs> no, she doesn't. <laughs> do you know any? Do you know any actresses that have a mustache? Hillary Swank, <laughs> Madonna, really? Lourdes, her daughter, absolutely. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, so I don't want to be presumptuous, so but I, I did pick a, a movie for this podcast called Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. So Daniel was gracious enough to have me on as the guest. I almost said co-host. That That's not what I was, but I felt very... A gracious um, guest. Yeah. You love that movie. You talk about it all the time. Well, I saw it at a time last year when things were really hitting the fan and... I broke my own rule of having hard alcohol in the house and I got a bottle of whiskey and drank a whole bottle of whiskey while watching this movie. Oh, Oh, dear. Oh, wow. This is in April or May when political shit and society was falling apart. Last year? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. So it was a perfect... You know, actually, April or May last year, that's... We were at the beginning of the road of a journey that nobody quite knew where it was going. So that I feel like that's totally acceptable. Do you remember when we were like challenging each other to do push-ups and things like that? Or it's like, I want to challenge um, Tom Finley Schmigigans to take six shots of tequila like through Instagram. (laughs) I wasn't there for that. I didn't I didn't lean into Instagram that way. What was it like uh, being on a different podcast? I felt Brady. vulnerable, insecure. Uh-huh. Were you excited? Naked. New flesh. Yeah. Well, I mean, the two of you weren't there. So I felt like I had to carry and let's just say I'm not the two of you. So I had to find my own authentic, unique, beautiful little voice without you. And it was like, <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I was a kid going off to school and my parents were sending me away. Like Brady, you can do this. Brady represent the family. Well, <laughs> yeah, it went, uh, it went well. Make sure to wash your hands. We'll see. It, by the time this comes out, that episode will have come out. Mustachioed podcastio. Very Check it good. out. They're great. Other than that, I watched a lot of different things. I do want to talk about this hallucinations movie that I posted on Instagram. Um, oh, oh, yeah. The, the shot on video. Yeah. Shot on video is something that I, is a whole culture unto itself. Mm-hmm. Like there's podcasters and movie aficionados and then there's like SOV people who they're very uh, on point with this stuff. You know, I got I got into this a little bit a, a few years ago, but I don't really watch it that often. I think we were watching a lot of serious shit with like Mikey and Nikki. Yeah. Yeah. That I needed to just watch something that was goofy. Instead of it being goofy, it actually was kind of 
terrifying. Um, oh, really? So yeah, this is the Polonia brothers. They made this when they were uh, juniors in high school. And they are identical twin brothers from Pennsylvania. This is like a psychosexual terror movie, like with, with satanic cults and penis aliens. Okay, that 100% brothers. Into this. Yeah, really. They're yeah. in high school Sold. when they did this? Sold. Yeah, a, totally knife, a knife getting shit out of <laughs> one of the kids' butts and landing in the toilet and all sorts of crazy shit that happens in 60 minutes. And it's, again, because it's shot on video, it's got this weird home video quality that's kind of disturbing. Right. Um, awesome. So it's not going to work for everybody, that style. But I would say it's a higher quality uh, version of the SOV style. So I actually started putting together a list. I've realized I've only seen like six or seven shot on video uh, movies, but it is, I'd say, one of my favorite. When did it come out? 1987. So many great things came out the year of my birth, yeah, including myself. <laughs> so. That Allison's a hoot and a half. Yeah, just a, she's a hoot and a half. Gosh. But uh, they went on to do Feeders and Feeders 2 and Splatter Farm. They're, they're more known Splatter for farm. those. Yeah. So that's, that's I think great. I've heard of Feeders, though. Mm-hmm. I think that might be Super 8. So they graduated from. Ah, from video. From magnetic. From magnetics. Yeah. To optics. Yeah. So I'll, I'll probably be watching more shot on video stuff. I busted out a couple of books hmm. that I have and I've been kind of making a list of things I'll be going through. It looks terrible. I have seen, I've seen uh, stuff for feeders on Instagram. Yeah, that's on the list. Yeah, it's like they made it for like 500 bucks, you know, and they're like in the middle of this frozen ass winter in Pennsylvania and they have nothing else to do. So it's like, for me, I admire a high school student that is bored out of their mind in the winter that can make something as good as this. And then you think about the technology that they were using of like, how are they editing right. and cutting the shit together? It's yeah, like, it, it's primitive, right? right. Like it's, over, I'm overstating like the quality of it in the fact that like, yes, it's a bunch of high schoolers, but the inventiveness is pretty sophisticated. Okay. Um, That's awesome. Quite enjoyed it. How are you? Oh, great. I had, I went to a chiropractor earlier today for like the first time in years and uh, got my, got my neck yanked around real nicely, but it did like when they were finished and I, and I sat up, I got real like lightheaded for Mm -hmm. a minute and I had like a, Mm -hmm. like a micro headache and, uh, and then they were, they were like, shoo, shoo, you know, Get, get. And I was, I was like, I can't walk. She did tell me, like, I don't know if you remember that I was talking about how I had like numbness going down my forearms during yeah. the summertime. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's from how bad my posture is when I'm working. So she went in and did a couple criggity cracks and put these like electrodes on my back with like a heater. And um, I just sat there like turning into jelly for 10 minutes. And nice. Yeah. So I feel good. So um, that's nice. I can move my neck. So that's, that's lovely. It puts me in a great mood. How was the crunch? Did you- crunch was, it was good. She when she did my like upper back, it sounded like someone just taking a sledgehammer to walnuts. <laughs> it was crazy. I didn't realize so much needed to come together. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And then she went into like the upper upper part of my neck, where I'm I'm always convinced they're just gonna you know break my neck. Yeah, there's something about going to the Cairo that when they're like breathe in and you know just this deep breath, I'm always like. Wait, 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 no. It's hard. Where I don't want them to like chop off my head. It's it's like that. Yeah, it's like the innocent person that's getting shot by a terrorist well, or your head cut off. Well, yeah. Well, it's like there's always that moment too where it's like, like, what if I don't relax enough? And what if I flinch at the yes. last minute? And then because of the like the tension in my neck. I'm par- yes. And so, yes. So that was so like. Are these rational fears or is this like a. No, I don't think so. Has this ever no. happened to anyone? No, I don't think so. I, I don't mean, think unless they're like horrible. Would, yeah, but, I don't think these people would be licensed. Yeah. If, like, you walk in, it's like, hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm, I'm yeah. like, yeah, Sorry. paraplegic. 
strategic now. Whoops. Thanks, no. Chuck Norris. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's more of a Steven Seagal move. But yeah, whatever. I was going to say. Have um, you been? I've never been to a chiropractor. It's unsettling. Oh, really? In the middle of it. But and necessary. Then you get, yes. Well, hang and on. Then you come yeah. out and it's like, just, now I understand that chiropractors do what they do and all that stuff. Sure. But I also understand that like having all of like the bones in your back and your neck and everything all crackled is kind of impressive on its own. Do you think there's like a chiropractor like floor show that they do to like kind of like impress, make sure that people understand that they're like getting a treatment? Or is it all like, could you just like go in like a ninja and just like tap one bone the right way? Oh, uh, I see I, so Like I, a performative aspect yes, to it? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I would say I have been to... And I and it, it depresses me. And part of the reason I haven't gone to see a chiropractor in so long was because Dr. Harrison Darling in Pasadena. And if you live down there, you should absolutely go because she's amazing. But she was so good that I didn't want to go see anybody else, even, oh. even up here. Because... I was this like withered, um, like crunchy raisin that went in to see her. And then she made me an angel again. And, and it was like, I could feel, I don't mean to be like super woo woo about it, but it was like, I could finally, it felt like the energy was actually going up and down my spine. Oh, totally. It was great. Uh, but she would do a specific type of crunching where she would like position herself into my hip and then cross my leg over and then grab my shoulder and then just like squeeze me really hard. And it was like everything in my body unfolded. Yep. It was fabulous. And then they always do the upper, upper, upper neck, which is like, Uh that's the cream of the crop, but it's also the scariest. That's where like the liquid bones are and you run off, break into a zoo and eat a goat. Are we talking about Richard Chase? Alter States. Oh, Alter States. Yes. That's... Alter States throwback. All right. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sorry. So there's Dude, the next stuff. I'd actually say that it's the opposite of, you know, you're asking about whether it's like performative. I'd mm-hmm. say it's the opposite experience for me where it's like mm. I walk into a room and I'm like, hey, how's it going? He's like, good. Okay. I'm going to stop your back. I'm going to do your neck. I'm going to do your hips. Okay. You're done. I'm like, oh, what? Like it, it very much. So it's overly practical. Yeah. Not my, my chiropractor today did not stop talking about cats the whole time and i and she made me keenly aware of how many cat things i wear every day that i didn't notice but she's doing this while she's working on you right yes see and that's where i get a little like i want there to be silence when he does it like let's let's get the foreplay out of the way then get silent let me breathe into my body what the hell chiropractors are you going to brady (laughs) snap Resume conversation, not this just like talk while we do it. Like, it, uh, it's, like, like it's a little nothing. too intimate. I yeah, see. yeah. I see. it makes right. me feel like a cheap date. Gotcha. Wine me, dine me. Yeah. Finesse me. Let yeah. me talk about my life. Um, yeah, so that was nice. So I do feel resumed and back to normal a little bit. Uh, we went to Montana, which is why this episode is late. I apologize. You can blame that on me. So yeah, um, big sky country. Yes, it was it was beautiful. Drove out to Montana to Libby, Montana. Um, they definitely uh, don't like Portlanders, and that's okay. Yeah. So specifically, the experience that we had is uh, Libby, Montana has a uh, like a local heritage museum, which so is a like, great museum, which is actually not bad. Like yeah. for, as far as local museums go, that's actually mm-hmm. pretty good. And then they have a little registry book. Oh yeah, she, she, you know, we were signing in, and she goes, "Oh, let us know where you're from." And so I, I wrote down two people from Portland, Oregon, and she saw, and she was like, Ugh. <laughs> like audibly was disgusted with us. And I was like, I was like, "Don't worry about it. We're only going to make half your frogs gay." 
So like, <laughs> uh, just just relax. We're cool some it. of some of them will become communists. It's okay. Yep. Um, it's fucking. But wild. it was it was it's beautiful. We had a great time. The people were friendly. A little standoffish, but friendly. That's fine. Understandable. Small small we got town. Some great antiques. Oh my god. Learned a lot about asbestos. Okay. So much about asbestos. <laughs> and like, apparently they hate the EPA up there, but that's fine too. Um, and then uh, we, I would say that my favorite part was our drive back when we were in um, Idaho and we went to the antique store that my folks oh, yeah. were like very adamant that we go check out. Mm-hmm. And we get in there and this guy has, um, what was the movie with Woody Harrelson when he plays the bowler? Kingpin? Kingpin. Kingpin. Yeah. So, the Amish guy that's with him, mm-hmm. totally same haircut. So he's the one running the antique store and he he can't... Randy Quaid is running the antique store. <laughs> Randy yeah. Quaid is running the antique store and Randy Quaid, to anyone that will listen, is just talking about how dangerous the vaccines are and, um, and how um, we need to watch out for our neighbors because if our neighbors aren't prepping as well as we are prepping, then we're going to have to be afraid of them coming up to the door when they need food. When, when shit hits the fan because of the vaccines. And Wait, I, was that the store guy or yes, was that the guy talking no, to the store guy? It was both of them. And oh. it was, yeah. They were talking to each other. They were talking to each other, but it was like, there were two guys that were in there and they didn't know each other. They just struck up conversation about like 5G. And and Josh was like totally chill and minding his own business. And I was like, do you fucking hear this shit? Oh my God. Um, I was absolutely listening. I was hanging out every word. <laughs> yeah. I was just playing it cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> and it just you know different strokes for different folks but it just you know, it's like one of those reminders that we live in a bubble mm-hmm. in portland yeah. it's like we live in a we live in a tiny tiny communist bubble well we've talked about this before but like the the thing that that really comes to mind for me is like when you go out of town barely and you have tattoos oh oh right yeah. and like people looking at your tattoos so that's like an hour away yeah so i can only imagine when you're an hour away from the canadian border um, actually, there were, there were there were a into. lot of uh, a lot of tattooed ladies in Libby, so I didn't I didn't yeah. feel that self conscious about it. <clears throat> I only felt self conscious about telling people I was from Portland. <laughs> 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 um, so oh, and I saw a moose. Um, we almost hit a moose. We almost hit well, a not, moose. Not almost. Well, we we had a ways to go before we hit the moose, but it crossed the road in front of us. It was it was like an inky black shadow like 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 us if if a giant spider could just flick its legs around and like run across the road and i thought it was a bear at first because i i was like in my i've never seen a moose in real life and i and i was like that is a giant shadow that has to be a bear and i was like it's too it's too big to be a bear it's too big and then it's like the shadow hit. it was like vanta black it was so yeah, dark it was vanta black it was absorbing all the light it was like there was, there, it was even like a hole in space yes. is this like how crypt new cryptids are created i think so yeah it's just a moose oh my god oh my god well it finally like the silu- you describe an animal in some weird way well i don't know how the silhouette was working because we our headlights are shining on it and it still looks like some shadow in the mist yeah, yeah. and 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 then i see the moose face and i was i was like it's a I lost my mind. So Allison's a bit of a nervous passenger. I was driving at the time. That's true. And but shocking to no one. But <laughs> believe this or yeah, believe <laughs> make the make of this what you will. But uh, Allison was super keyed up, and like her radar was like set to like eleven because she spotted the moose before I did, and I was driving the car. And she was like, "Bear, moose!" <laughs> and then the moose crossed the road, and we were on by. 
Same thing happened with a deer a little while later. This is why you probably shouldn't drive in Montana at midnight. You Wait. Yeah. Okay. So we got in really you, late. How are your nerves? Chill. He's fine. In regards, you're not picking up some ambient anxiety. I'm aware of her anxious behavior, and I'm trying to like keyword trying. I'm trying to uh, drive in a comfortable manner, a, ca- oh. a casual manner. Okay. He and at one point we were very patient with me. We were going a little too fast. I slowed it down, mm-hmm. you know, like just be respectful. He was well, because when I saw the deer, I had like a major moment where I was like, I don't mean that we have to pull over, but I'm like getting close to the fact that we might have to pull over because I'm about to shit my pants. Like <laughs> I was like, I need, I know the speed limit is 60 and I know we're going 60, but I need us to go 50 until we get to the goddamn house. Like I just, I couldn't, it was too, because everyone's like, like, oh, the Idaho CHP is just totally going to nail you guys. And then like, also, and then my dad would not stop sending me text messages about watching out for like uh, animals on the highway. And then there were all these like skid marks all over the goddamn road <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And then like on the side of the road, there's crosses every, like everywhere. They have tiny little crosses that they set up with like cute little wreaths and like tiny Trump flags. And they put them all along the goddamn road. And I'm like, these are all the people. And in my mind, I'm thinking like, these are the people that died hitting moose. Like, so, the, so the, the, yeah. the crosses I won't speak to because that probably represents people that got in accidents and died. The burnouts on the road later on, later, I thought about as like mostly showing up on bridges and some other like kind of key places makes me think it was mostly like tuner dudes, like being idiots, like like fast and furious with their car doing burnouts and I don't, stuff. I don't disagree with you, but in the moment. Yeah, the mind plays tricks. I was dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes. Also, the forest absorbs all the light, and it's basically oh just like a tunnel. Yeah. It, it, you couldn't see anything. Well, Josh, you can drive me anywhere, because yeah. I would like to drive with somebody who doesn't absorb my anxiety, and vice versa, because my household is a bunch of anxious people, and I, I'm the one who drives, and Capri gets really anxious about me speeding, and then I get anxious about her getting anxious, and so we're both just. And then it's and, and then and then the ride becomes wave. very quiet. Yeah. Is that what happens? Like you have to like the ride just nobody's talking and the music is off. I'm. We don't listen to podcasts. You can we, cut the tension with like a saw. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, on that note, the single movie that I watched this week mm. was a simple plan. 1998 Sam Raimi film with uh, Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton. And Bridget Fonda, like, holy smokes. Uh, We watched that a couple nights ago. And Billy Bob Thornton is such a good character actor. Mm -hmm. He's such a good actor. And and I do, I appreciate Bill Paxton, but putting Bill Paxton up against Billy Bob Thornton seems unfair. Um, Josh had a different opinion. I really like Bill Paxton. I think he plays, like, a really good, like, regular guy. Yeah. And I think that they were both, like, well cast for their roles. Although I will acknowledge that to do what uh, Billy Bob Thornton did in A Simple Plan is definitely like the next echelon. We had talked about this previously, but like playing simple or playing a character who has like a, a mental health issue or playing a character that has is disabled mm-hmm. is extremely hard, mm-hmm. in my personal opinion, to, to do it without making it seem cartoonish. Right. And I mean, Billy Bob just like hits it. He's fantastic. Yes, please. So anyway, so the, I so this is a this is a Sam Raimi movie. Yes, 
uh, and it's about a couple of dudes who find a shit ton of cash. It's it's about three dudes who get in an accident. They go wandering off into the woods looking for their dog, I believe, and they come across a uh, a downed airplane. And they go and they check it out, and they find they found like four point five million dollars or something mm. in the airplane, and they they think it's going to be quick and easy to take care of it, divvy it up, you know, not get caught. It's like the it's like the money is evil, and the moment they get greedy about it, everything that can go wrong goes wrong, mm-hmm. and um, and in the most like devastating fashion. But it's really really well done. So, yeah, it's the most restraint I've ever seen Sam Raimi do in a movie. There are only like a couple of like Sam Raimi moments where Raimiisms, Raimi, yeah, Raimiisms, where he's doing things that kind of show up in some of his other movies. Otherwise, it's extremely reserved for Sam Raimi. It's super reserved for Danny Elfman, who did the to, did the uh, musical score as well. Like I thought, no, it, no pipe organ. No, it, I thought it, I thought it was Thomas Newman um, for a minute, and mm-hmm. then and then I saw Danny Elfman. I was like, Raimi, hmm. okay. I like this money is evil idea. I'm trying to think there was a movie that comes to mind that was like a briefcase where the camera would often follow the briefcase, like getting tossed to and fro. Oh, I just thought of Fargo. No, but no. What's that one? I don't know. I think it's a trope, though. Oh, okay. I'll think about it. Well, it shows up in this movie as well. Our feature tonight. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Money has a corrupting influence. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. That, that was my week. Uh, Joshua, how was yours? Yeah. My week started in a very interesting way or from the last time that we recorded. So uh, I have a chronic skin condition and I have to treat it in certain ways. The newest treatment that Mm. I'm trying is a phototherapy booth, which is that big device that you probably saw out in the the room in the back. I was a little intimidated of the machine at Mm -hmm. first, but then eventually I decided I really need to get into this and just do it. So I looked through my medical advice. I couldn't find the recommended dose as in the, the amount of time that I'm supposed to be in front of this thing. And long story short, I set it for too much time and I completely nuked my skin. Oh, shit. So yeah, I, I, like, I like a gnarly home. sunburn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I came home and he was a lobster and had been for mm. oh, over a week now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, or it's, no, it's been over a week. Yeah. Yeah. So, man. Anyway, I know what the guys at Chernobyl felt. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's, it's been I know what process- radiation poison feels like, feels like. And it's like, and then Josh like hung out with my father, like while in like extraordinary pain and itchiness from having the sunburn. So, and he's just sitting there like playing it real cool and like, <laughs> like he was miserable. Well, uh-huh. well, I did take a bunch of Advil and I was drinking a lot. So those things we drink, helped. We drink a ton. Oh, as you got it with family. Now, I, I did not see this device, but oh. for some reason, I'm thinking it's like one of those old school transparency projectors that we've talked about. I don't know why that crossed my mind. That would be fun. It uh, looks it looks like if someone took the fluorescent lights off of a classroom ceiling and like stood, uh, them, up, stood them up on the floor. Yeah, it's like it's like half a tanning bed. Like, I was going to say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Man. So anyway, impressive machinery. Powerful. Uh, so powerful. Light, light is a fickle bitch. It really is. So I know better now. Did you sunburn some like sensitive areas? No, because they're tough. (laughs) No sunburns. (laughs) He said with great confidence. It's tough. It's tough stuff. Uh, As far as movies go, um, I watched a couple movies 
the and getting ready for this because we're doing a, a Paul Newman movie. I wanted to watch one of the coolest movies that's ever been made. It's called Slapshot, and it's from 1977. Have either of you seen Slapshot? No, sir. I have not. Okay, it's about hockey, but it's about like a like a triple A, like double A, mm-hmm. like regional pro, semi pro kind of team, and they are about to be liquidated. They're about to lose the team. And Paul Newman is apparently this used to be a thing, and I don't I don't know if it's still a thing anymore. But he was a player coach, so he's like a senior guy that plays, but is also the coach of the team. Mm-hmm. And he's like up in years and all that kind of stuff, and kind of like looking for what's next or other possibilities. Mostly, he just wants to keep the team together because he lives in this town. He's all set up there. The one thing that's iconic about this movie that I do remember, and I've only ever seen this image, uh, are the three brothers right. that look like they're the Ramones that are like bleeding in the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Hanson brothers, they're amazing. Yeah, Um, that's the only thing I know about this movie. This movie is actually really fucking funny. Uh, I loved it. I had seen it like with like the subtitles on in a bar like a while ago. Mm. That was my first introduction to it. It is the Hanson brothers who you're talking about are like these, they're like half nerds, but half Heshers. And they are like the living embodiment of the spirit of hockey where... It's like half lunacy, but also like just really direct skills where what they're really good at is like starting fights with people Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just like beating the shit out of strangers. So that happens a bunch of times in the movie. Um, I don't really know a whole heck of a lot about hockey to really appreciate this movie more fully, but it's boy, it's a lot of fun. It's before Animal House. It's before Caddyshack. It has that similar sense of humor. I feel like either one of those movies and Paul Newman is as charismatic and as likable as he's ever been. Ugh. I love hockey. Do you really? Legitimately, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so my brother and brother-in-law uh, played hockey growing up. So oh, I went yeah. to their games and learned all about it. And But now that I'm here, like, I don't really have a chance to... We, there's not really a team here. Josh and I had talked about going well, to... Isn't there like a minor league team? Yeah, there's Blackhawks. Yeah. Which are... Winterhawks. Winterhawks, excuse yeah. me. Which yeah. are a, a farm league team for the Blackhawks. Yeah. So I, I want to go because I want to see the fight. It's fun. Yeah. It's fun. They don't really do as much of the fighting... Which is so stupid. These days. Why do you think people are going? Well, okay, and they get into because that in the we want to see dudes in pads yeah. hitting each other with hockey sticks. Yeah, it, right? de- it depends. There's there's a player on the New York Rangers that's, uh, or no, he's not on the Rangers. He's on anyway. There's a, there's some player um, that is notorious for doing cheap shots, and so everyone's starting to fight uh, fight him. Oh, and the league hasn't really stepped in. So th- that's this season actually. Okay. So apparently, so there you go. I'm still following it a little bit, but, but that's that's kind of like the heart of this movie. So yeah. basically, once they realize that the team is going to fold, uh, Paul Newman has to essentially change tactics, and he's starting to play a little bit dirtier and play a little bit more to the uh, circus pro wrestling side of hockey mm. to encourage and kind of draw out some of the fights. Mm-hmm. So the Hanson brothers are like amazing fighters. He's trying to, he's basically egging people on to like fight him or whatever so they, they can score goals and win games because the only way that he thinks the team can survive is if they win the cup, they win the pennant. And the only way that they can win games is to play dirty. Mm. And that all kind of comes to a head at the very end where the only guy who's actually really good on the team, who's like a really like excellent finesse hockey player, just like hates the fighting, can't stand it. He thinks it's like uh, silly buffoonery. Uh-huh. And he, they basically have to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to play to the circus or if they're going to play like straight clean hockey. Got it. But the movie's hilarious. I love it. I can understand why other people consider it to be like a film classic or like at least a, a classic sports movie. It is, I think, a super cool movie 
because of its irreverence and its um, predating some of these other more like party animal, like madcap mm-hmm. kind of silly like comedies like Animal House and Caddyshack that came out like directly after. Nice. Nice. So I think hockey really lends itself well to movies. I don't know why. Mm. I don't know if it's like the type of character that would show up in hockey movies. Is it because movies, the Mighty Ducks came out when we were kids? <laughs> no, it's because the Cutting Edge came out when we were kids. Oh! oh. Mm. Bam. Slap Romantic. So romantic. You know, From hockey player. sides of the track. Yeah. <laughs> I just want these kids to work it out. Wait, isn't that our homie from? We talked about this from uh, Alien movie, Lance Hendrickson. I don't think it's Lance Hendrickson. <laughs> what Alien movie? Into the fire. No. Oh, uh, fire. oh, oh, fire in the sky. Fire in the sky. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's him. Uh, DB Sweeney. DB Sweeney. Jeez. Yep. And I also watched, and I won't talk too much about this. I watched uh, Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead, which came out on Netflix. It's number one on Netflix right now. Lots of people hate this movie. Number one equals best, right? Um, of course. Obviously, Brady. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> Most people that see something I means came, it's the best. I came home from work probably around like the second, maybe like the last three quarters of the movie. And uh, it's a little... I know that it's kind of meant to be goofy, but it's also like overly sincere. Hmm. And um, and I really wasn't feeling it. Except that I love... Batista? Batista. Yeah, he's great. He's amazing. Yeah, he's a really likable guy. Yeah. Um, I think that he is maybe not enough to carry this movie, but he is like the least of this movie's problems. I don't think it deserves all like the hate it's getting. Like a lot of people are just like, blah, 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 bad, bad movie. Like we've watched like way worse movies than this. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, it's like for the resources and for like the, like the prominent like distribution position it's getting, like you could do better than this. I don't know. I, don't I think, know. I think Zach's the reason why people have such an issue with Zack Snyder is that he does have all of this money and he makes stuff that is really sincere, but mm-hmm. it's, like off in some way it's like no, hard to describe that yeah. you you see the i can see the sincerity in what he's making but it's like empty or hollow right. or like it's almost like somebody who is trying to make a movie based on what they heard about somebody making movies okay that's not, i don't i don't know if that makes sense no, I, I get it like when i was watching army of the dead because we just watched elaine may mikey nicky the whole idea of like knowing how to edit things, knowing how to trim, knowing how to like be elegant with um, the composition, like kind of occurred to me because this is a two and a half hour long movie and it's like a 90 minute plot. And it's basically just like, a, it's like a heist movie. It's like an Ocean's Eleven in a zombie apocalypse kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And it could have been told a lot shorter. And another thing is Zack Snyder is really good. I'm not, I'm not, I'm no irony. Like he's legitimately good at creating these like living, breathing, like hero moments where you have like a, like a still image that you need to bring to life that really kind of like centers the whole movie where mm-hmm. like just like a, a hero moment. Right. And he throws them away. It's like, there's all these brilliant, beautiful sequences during the uh, opening credits and during like these montages. And like, that's your movie right there. Like mm-hmm. why, why are you putting jamming these sequences into parts of the movie where they're not going to be remembered or not, not so much remembered, but where they, they distract. I think it's because he falls in love with the storyboarding process. Yeah. I think he's really good at the storyboarding process, but he doesn't know how to move on from that to actually make a cohesive movie. Yeah. Movie. I, I think, I think he's the kind of guy where he needs to stay in the director's chair, but maybe that's it. And like, let other people write the movie storyboard. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. like edit. Like he needs to relinquish some control in order to like finish the product better. Oh, is he more involved? Was it like his name on the editing or I, the story? I, I assume it's like he has like full control. Mm. But I don't know those things. So that's my uh, two cents on Army of the Dead. If you're a super like hardcore fiend for zombie movies, check it out. Uh, or if you love Dave Batista, and who doesn't? Or Tig Notaro, because she's great. But uh, I would, it's, it's a middling, middling movie for me. It wasn't. I can't wasn't. watch a Dave Batista movie because I just see the Lemonhead candy <laughs> kid. <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird. It's just this weird association. I also asked a question about his neck. Oh, I was, I was just, well, he's such a big guy that I was wondering if he has full range of motion in his neck. Like without his whole body. Yeah, kind of like, I mean, he's so his upper body is so big that I I do wonder like how far his neck can actually go before he's got to do the whole like shoulder and thoracic cavity where he's just got to like, you know, um, directly turn to somebody to just like answer a question. Now, wasn't this a movie that Chris D'Elia was in and then he was like edited out the comedian who was. Oh, the creeper comedian. Yeah. They're all creepy. I don't don't know who you're talking about. Is he the one that like uh, got caught on Snapchat? trying to seduce a 14 year old oh or he was like sending he, dick pics or he something had like a that? sex addiction and it happened to be for fairly young wait yeah, what, what what's his last name chris what delia d-e-l-i-a oh that guy the yeah, 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 guy. yeah 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 he got he got dropped real fast <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah i think he was in this movie and then they just like edited him out somehow. okay yeah could be yeah uh, well, I mean, there was a moment that was going around where you could actually see what he didn't think that people could do screen screen grabs of like um, Snapchat. Mm-hmm. He didn't think that you could do screen caps of Snapchat. So there were screen caps oh. of him like talking dirty to like 14 year olds and like sending dick pics and stuff like that. Yikes. <laughs> Fuck him. <laughs> yep. Mm, <laughs> trying to think. Like, I don't think I have anything else. I think that's that's been pretty much my week. Yeah. It's a pretty good week. Yeah. It wasn't bad. It was busy. It was busy. And meanwhile, uh, Brady uh, and his wife were nice enough to watch our cats. True. The the photo you sent me of Johnny, like, becoming Capri's spirit animal was really wonderful because I knew exactly what he was doing to her. And I know how manipulative it is. Yeah. I've seen him flop on his belly when I've come over, but he... You've never held the flop. No, 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 he's flopped on you. Yeah, yeah I, he he's, has. He's but just cool. just the how rapid he did it with her and just how performative it was. Mm-hmm. I think there was one time where she walked to the kitchen and he had flopped like twice. He like flopped. She didn't or she scratched him and then he got back up and then walked to the kitchen and flopped again. Yeah. So, yeah, he loves he loves ladies. Yeah. Uh, tonight's featured film is The Hustler from 1961, directed by Robert Rawson, who's mostly known as a writer. He wrote. 21 featured films. He directed 10, he produced five. He did all three of those functions for The Hustler. But Robert Rawson was also a communist. He was a member of the Communist Party from 1937 to 1947, up until the time that he was investigated by the House Un-American Activities Committee. Whack! Whack! <laughs> now, uh, for those of you who don't know about Whack or Joseph McCarthy or any of those sort of things, let me just give you a little brief little quick history here. So the late 40s were a bonanza for the Soviet Union. The Rosenbergs, who were scientists, gave them the atom bomb. Eastern Europe had become their backyard. China had just become a communist republic. In response, many American conservative politicians looked inward to root out secret commies amongst us. 
It was widely rumored that Hollywood was full of communists, so that was a great place to start. It wasn't long before Warner Brothers boss Jack Warner was called to testify. If you'd never heard of McCarthyism, it worked like this. So basically, number one, you're accused of being a communist. Number two, you are questioned by a committee. Number three, if you cooperate and name people, you're treated leniently. But if not, you're blacklisted as a communist and no one will hire you. So Rosen was named by studio boss Jack Warner in 1947, but he refused to name names and he was blacklisted in 1951. But after two years of not working, he went back and named names. He named 57 people. So he ended a lot of friendships and quite a few careers of the people around him. He couldn't leave the country because when you're investigated for communism, you get your passport denied. So it's not like he could leave for Europe. Yeah, and like get in, get more work. It's weird though because you have like peers like Jules Dassin mm-hmm. that worked on. He did Night in the City. He did Brute Force. He did Thieves Highway. Point is, like a lot of these different film noir uh, style movies, and he also was blacklisted. And he pieced out to France. Yeah, and then made Rafifi, which I don't know if you've seen that, but that's like mm. a really awesome choice, like heist movie. Do okay. we know? Do we know if he had dual citizenship already? I don't Does know. that matter? Because I, I mean, that would be my only okay. guess for that. Because you also had it in music, right? So there's a lot of like French jazz that came out at the time mm-hmm. that were, oh, yeah. um, you know, black musicians who fled to right. France. So there's a, there's a rich American based jazz scene out of France, right? Mm-hmm. But also because the the French are in some ways like more accepting and appreciative appreciative of jazz than a lot of American audiences were. Yeah. So. Yeah, but this is also where you get like the French New Wave, right? So a lot of the French film critics from the fifties were inspired by these uh, Americans that were kicked out. Yeah, they moved to France, so it's kind of weird. The American diaspora, because of the uh, Red Scare in the mm-hmm. late forties and early fifties, and McCarthyism and the way that wind ran amok. It's, I mean, like McCarthyism in general is just kind of crazy. It and how it reflects like modern modern stuff with um with the early notion of like culture wars and cancel culture yeah. and all this kind of stuff <laughs> yeah where people are like oh like we think you might be a communist like you're canceled yep like you're yeah. losing your job because you might be a communist yep and if you don't like give us a bunch of names of other people who might also be communist then then you're not cooperating with us and mm-hmm. you're a bad guy but yeah like rawson the director not having his passport and not being able to work i mean that's got to be it's like death, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. just thinking about my own experience of like not being able to work or yeah. like do the thing that you love. Right. Based on something that the government's saying you like that's I mean, and what, was it the next year that he had fifty seven names? Two years later. Two so years he was later, he was so. out of work for two years. Yeah. He's blacklisted for two years. So he got his career back, but all it cost him was his soul. <laughs> how, long, how long did the blacklisting go on for was that like four? it wasn't it wasn't that long so but. basically what happened was the HUAC has been around for a minute like they started in the 30s and it was always investigating like communist activity in the united states but it wasn't until like the late 40s and early 50s that it became sort of a thing specifically because senator joseph mccarthy of wisconsin was sort of weaponizing it mm-hmm. he was using it to like 
prop himself up in the same way that a lot of modern politicians will basically drum up a controversy, place themselves at the center of it. And whenever the circus happens in the courtroom, that just puts their name more on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. So he would go after high profile people, make them like sweat it out, make them name names. And if they didn't name names, then they're blacklisted. And if they do name names, then that's more people for him to go investigate. Now, eventually it got to the point where uh, the conspiratorial thinking of like, well, there's communists, there's a, all these card-carrying communists in the army and in the State Department, blah, 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 blah. But uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower was the president at the time. And he basically just told them to not even bother with it. So that if someone from the Eisenhower administration got subpoenaed by his committee, he told them just to ignore it. Mm. And so they started to run out of names. Instead of going up the ladder, it started going back down the ladder and finally, it all came crashing down when someone, and I should probably look this up, but this gentleman was like, do you have no shame, sir? And because it was like so obvious to everyone that this whole thing was a circus and that it was all just emotional bait, this guy like being vulnerable and real on the stand and calling Justin McCarthy on his bullshit for being having like no real invested interest in mm-hmm. this investigation that he was pursuing. It was all just a circus. So that was that was uh, Joseph Nye Welsh. Okay, and what would, what that. did he do? As uh, an American lawyer and actor who served as the chief counsel for the United States Army, uh, his confrontation with McCarthy during the hearings in which he famously asked McCarthy, "At long last, have you left no sense of decency?" Mm. And that was the turning point for the history of McCarthyism. Right, because at that point the public interest instead of being afraid of like this specter of communism turned to humanizing the people that he was abusing. Yeah. Right. And then at that point, the whole McCarthyism basically came crashing down where no one really supported it. And because the legal authority of the HUAC committee was questionable to begin with, it all just kind of fell apart. It's weird though, because it seems so quaint, not quaint, but like such a weird historic blip. Mm Mm-hmm. But then we're going through it right now. I agree. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Of just like, yeah, the, the the name calling and the witch hunts and stuff like that. It definitely feels like it's it's coming back up. And also, like in the 90s, Ilya Kazan, yeah. his homeboy, uh, Rossin's friend and yep. colleague for a lot of the people who also, worked on this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the 90s, he received an honorary Oscar for yeah. Martin Scorsese. And this is actually how I learned about it as a kid. So I remember the footage of Scorsese handing Elia Kazan this this Oscar for making like On the Waterfront and mm-hmm. East of Eden and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And people refused to clap and they were like booing because he was also somebody who named names. Right. Mm. And that's I think that's kind of an unfair thing because the people who are naming names are, put, are basically put in this impossible position. Like yeah. the people who didn't name names and that were blacklisted, they basically couldn't go anywhere for work. And uh, was it uh, Truman Capote? Like basically had to ghostwrite all these different movies, but never receive any credit for it. And to Elia Kazan's point, like he basically uh, filmed a, a mea culpa in On the Waterfront, where essentially he addresses his relationship with communism by way of Marlon Brando and like the the plot of the movie, where mm. essentially the union and the um, the mob that runs the union and the dockyards essentially represents communism to him. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people... Film critics are suspicious of On the Waterfront as that sort of um, confessional method of him to sort of unburden himself through the whole specter of McCarthyism and communism as a way. Like basically, it's um, he is trying to forgive himself through the movie. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
And don't get me wrong, like the Marlon Brando's performance in On the Waterfront is amazing. And there are a lot of amazing performances and it's a fantastic movie. But I do think that the director stitching in like the personal incentives, if not necessarily like their own experience in the plot, definitely changes my appreciation for it, specifically Mm. to Elliot Kazan. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I feel like that happens all the time though. All the time. I think that's kind of the, when you get into directors, you get into their, their body of work. How often do you see the director telling their own stories in their films? And I feel like it's every single time and it com- or their passions or, you know, whatever that may be. But and and on that note, specifically in the hustler, it comes out because it's a story of a person who has to sell their soul to save their career. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is an essentially what happens to fast Eddie Nelson in the third act. Mm-hmm. So with that, 1961 is the hustler. I could always buy a bottle. Fifth of scotch. What do you want me to do? Just step out in the alley? Is that it? Big John, do you think this boy is a hustler? (laughs) Sausage, rack him up. So not to give anything away, I do think of The Hustler as essential cinema. Um, if you have any ideas of watching this movie, many, spo- many spoilers follow. So uh, just be aware of that. Fast Eddie Felsen is the greatest pool player alive, but he has two problems. He's too hungry and he's a loser. Eddie and his mentor, fellow hustler Charlie, crisscross from city to city, working unsuspecting bar patrons and pool players with a combination of cons involving expert billiards shooting. After a successful haul across the Midwest, Fast Eddie and Charlie land at the very real Ames Billiard Academy, flush with cash. Shrugging off a warning from a local player, Eddie is electrified by the moment where he'll face off against the also very real Minnesota Fats and full of piss and vinegar declares that he'll win $10,000 in a single night as well as beat the legendary pool shark. Upon Fat's arrival begins a marathon session of pool games. Despite early losses, at one point, Eddie is up by $18,000, but refuses to quit until Minnesota Fats concedes. Near his breaking point, Eddie is a mess, as Minnesota Fats coolly regroups and wipes Eddie out, against the protests of Charlie, who repeatedly tries to end the bout. Now left with nothing, Eddie recovers away from Charlie and meets Sarah, a complicated woman with a strong drinking habit. They're and mag- beautiful gloves. And wonderful nice gloves. gloves. Yeah. Pristine. Uh-huh. Uh, their magnetic attraction to each other is quickly realized, but beneath a pallor of secrecy around their true selves. They've been shacked up for a short while when Charlie locates Eddie at Sarah's. The blunt conversation between the hustlers reveals Eddie's past to Sarah, and Eddie coldly rejects Charlie after years of collaboration. Dick bag. Total dick move. Eddie tries to work up the cash to face Minnesota Fats again, but their last battle has made Fast Eddie too famous to hustle in most pool halls. He runs into ruthless gambler Burt Gordon, who calls him a loser, but nevertheless wants to back him, albeit with a 75% cut. 
Eddie refuses. While hustling in a lowly dive, Fast Eddie encounters another hustler and his crew who break his thumbs. A ruined Eddie returns to Sarah who cares for him while he heals. Their love is challenging, but real. Once healed, Eddie agrees to work for Bert who lines up a trip to Louisville to play a wealthy socialite named Finley. Sarah fears that she's about to be rejected and Eddie brings her along to Bert's displeasure. Once in Louisville, Bert expertly chisels at their relationship and both of their insecurities. Once the match with Finley begins, tensions flare with all three as Eddie falters at the game, which is not traditional billiards, but known as Karam billiards. Hmm. Eddie lashes out at Sarah when she encourages Eddie to defy Bert, but Eddie needs to prove that he's not a loser. Sarah, having been rejected, returns to the hotel. Eddie wins the match, but is reckoning with the events of the night and decides to walk home. Sarah has been waiting in the hotel where Bert tells her that Eddie wants her to leave, again manipulating Sarah. Sarah quickly self-destructs, sleeping with Bert, and commits suicide, leaving a cryptic message and lipstick on the bathroom mirror. When Eddie finally arrives, he finds the police processing the scene, collapses in anguish, and then attacks Bert. A short while later, equipped with his earnings from Louisville, Fast Eddie Felson again challenges Minnesota Fats, but directs his energy from the game, not at Fats, but Bert. Another marathon session later, Fats finally concedes to Fast Eddie. As Eddie begins to leave, Bert demands his 75% take, which Eddie rebukes, but acknowledges he'll never step into a pool hall again. And that's The Hustler. Damn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Heavy movie. Yeah. And since we were just talking about on the waterfront, one of the things I like about The Hustler as opposed to sort of the other um, emo tough guy movies of the same time period, (laughs) uh, like, you know, Rebel Without a Cause or On the Waterfront, is that Mm. On the Waterfront has like almost like like an upbeat, like chipper, chipper ending whereas the hustler you really kind of are just like left in like the wreckage of these people's lives yeah regardless of who who beats who these are definitely like uh this is this is dealing with a very specific layer in in like the class system of the of america you know we're, yeah. we're dealing with gamblers and hustlers and and the kings and the pawns right. of that lifestyle yeah uh, what I what I do love about how um, lived in and tragic this movie feels is that uh, the cinematography, which is done by Eugene uh, Shufton, I don't Shufton, know, I, don't know. I think it might be Shufton, but between the cinematographer and then Rawson's direction, it really brings to life the community that these people are living in, and it mm. brings to life the everyday people who are living their very ordinary lives uh it's racially mixed but it also it's like you can smell the cigarette smoke oh, when yeah, you're watching totally. it yeah and so we're we're getting a very specific um window into these kings of gambling so to speak yeah it's definitely like a, a window into like a, a realistic idea of like the underworld back in the day uh, rossin called it neo neo realism whatever that means and the backgrounds of these scenes are definitely filled out and colored with, uh, like, honest to God, street thugs. Like, these are not, these are not fakes. Like, these are like the real people. And you get the sense that the movie's been lived in, uh, and yet also tightly composed at the same time. It's like, you look at the background, <laughs> like, rogues gallery characters, it all feels like real dudes. Yeah. yeah so I think what he's probably referring to with the neo-neo realism is mm-hmm. that's post 
neorealism Italian cinema in the 40s. So it's Americans riffing on 40s well, I cinema. Mean, I don't I don't know. So like so Vittorio De Sica did Bicycle Thieves. That's like the most oh, famous okay, of them. Okay, um, yeah. So there was kind of this like let's watch a person starve to death after World War II, you know, <laughs> kind of kind of movie. Yeah, that's it's kind of the strange pseudo documentary style. That's not a documentary, but it feels very real. Right. And it, so he's probably trying to attribute himself or pay, you know, tip the hat to Italian movies. Okay. Which makes sense that now that the two of you said that of like, there is a strong aesthetic hand comp like composition wise with this movie, like you said, with the cinematography, the acting, the editing, but there is this attempt to make it seem realistic. And I think that the way that it is so obvious to me uh, that it's coming across that way is in the first 20 minutes where it just lets this scene play out of these two hustlers, you know, the, the stakes, just being raised over and over and over again. And it's like, okay, they're going to cut away from the scene eventually. Right. And it's like, no, I, it's like 30 minutes of this two hour movie. is just this one scene where Paul Newman hangs himself. Right. Uh, metaphorically speaking. Yeah. Um, because of his pride and his ego and stuff like that. And, and it's quite riveting to start a movie oh, with totally. this kind of slow paced scene that you have to kind of like sit and stand well, I with think it. I think because we get so drawn into the story of it that those two, those first two scenes, you know, the one where um, Fast Eddie is hustling the the smaller bar, the smaller billiard oh, club. Oh, like the, it's like a cold open. Yeah, almost. it's well, but it's a, you, that took a long time. You like mm-hmm. you said, it t- takes about a half hour or more, mm-hmm. and also. Into the scene with Minnesota Fats. Yes, but also, you know, but in that beginning scene, you know, it it took, I was I was surprised at how deep the hustle went about how yes. how far the two hustlers went to trick everybody in the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it wasn't just that he's losing, so it seems like an easy bet. It's that now he's piss drunk yeah. now. And so, and then we move into the scene with Minnesota Fats, which feels like it takes an hour or more. Mm-hmm. I love I love both scenes. They're I just, great. Just wanted to call out that in the first scene, we do have a Solid Six Salon member, Who's that? Uh, Vincent Gardenia, who is the father in Moonstruck. Oh, that's right. That's right. He plays a bartender. Yeah, so he's a familiar face. Yes. Oh, holy shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. But I, I think that Rawson really did a great job by by elongating these scenes and seeing how 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 self-destructive fast eddie will get um in a game so we're not quite sure if he's going to win or lose despite how fucked up he's going to be but when it comes all the way back around to his second showdown with minnesota fats without they're having that long sequence. We can already assume, right. based on what's happened before and the little, the little cues that we're getting now, that that is another contest that went over twenty four hours. Mm-hmm. And I think that's um, a smart move on Rawson's part to set up those two really, really long hustling scenes mm-hmm. to kind of get us used to um, how tedious these these contests well, are. Yeah, uh, I mean. Well, it it trusts the audience to learn the nuances of social engineering where it's not about who wins the game. It's about playing the long game where you intentionally lose and come across as being weak to win down the road. So it's like the slingshot effect of like, you know, I'm not going to come out balls to the wall and just prove how great I am. It's like you have to 
methodically chip away at this and you can't do it too fast because then people will just think that you're playing them. Mm-hmm. And so it takes time for the audience to understand this. And no one in the audience is going to understand this nuance of, of pool in general. Unless you show it to them. Right. Yeah. Unless you roll it out. And I think that that's that whole scene with Minnesota fats, as long as it is and all that stuff. I, I love that scene. I, I love it because uh, you don't have to know Dick about playing pool to understand the scene. Yes. It like explains it for you. Here's, well, it's like, here's it, the manual. It's like it tricks the viewer into thinking they know about pool, even if they don't. Even exactly. if they don't. Yeah. And the other thing is that, and it's it's more subtle, but cinematically, uh, the editor whose name I should probably know. D.D. Um, D.D. Allen. D.D. Allen. Thank D. you. D.D. Allen. Mm-hmm. Like the, the pool sequence with Minnesota Fats, the first one, uh, has like a rhythmic quality to it. Like you get used to like the sort of pace of events. And so as Minnesota Fats and Fast Eddie are playing through the night, you kind of have like an internal sense of how much time is passing based on the montage sequences and everything else. I don't know if this crossed your mind, but like having this movie right after we just picked Mikey and Nikki, mm-hmm. it was very much night and day in terms of like, that's what Elaine May was trying to go for in terms of pace. And... <laughs> Just seeing, because it, it, it evokes the same, they both evoke the same pain and anguish of watching somebody slowly collapse, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like they are their own worst enemy. It is like people who don't know when to get out of their situation. And you're like, oh no, I'm watching this train wreck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there is a hypnotic quality to the hustler that is missing from Mikey and Nikki that is in its editing mm-hmm. yeah. for sure. Because both movies have incredible actors. So I, I, yeah. I just, yeah, I have to think by, that it's the editing. Well, I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, Mikey and Nikki, unfortunately, as we talked about last episode, was, uh, you know, obligatorily slapped together because it had to be yeah. shown for at least some stint. Mm-hmm. But Dee uh, uh, Dee Allen has has quite a an outstanding career. I mean, this was her fourth movie that she'd edited. She went on to do Bonnie and Clyde after this. Um, I mean, she, she is very exceptional at what she does and how she tells the story. I mean, I, you know, as we know, the power is in the editing and, uh, and I think it's like you were saying, Josh, yeah, it's, like it's the, done. the editor is establishing like, like the heartbeat of the movie, Exactly. you know, like choosing how to like position focus and whether that's with the director's like overview or not, like the editor has enormous control. And I think that you really see like some fantastic edits in this movie, just the way that the scenes, like the timing of the scenes, how they come together, as well as the cinematography. It's like, I've watched a couple of other Robert Rawson movies just to kind of get a sense of what else he's done. And it, it's it's not very consistent. So I got to say that whomever the cinematographer is, I'm sorry. I don't know uh, the cinematographer is Eugene uh, Schuften. This is definitely one of those projects where every everything on the back end was done by extremely yes. well-intentioned and extremely talented people. I mean, the yeah. actors were amazing, amazing. But this is one of those beautiful pieces of artwork where you have exceptional editing, exceptional cinematography, storytelling, um, framing. It's a very comfortable, engaging story, and it's and it's presented extremely well. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree because I, I one of my major points with this movie is not necessarily that Robert Rawson is like a master. I don't think he is. I think he's just more of like a journeyman type director. But with The Hustler, we have a, a fantastic collaboration of like multiple elements that you really need to work working well. He had a great script to start with. He had great people working on the script. He had great people photo- photographing the movie, editing, 
uh, fantastic performances, oh, both God. like like high key and low key performances, as well as like a, a fun background of of other people. And you get the sense that there's like a great there's a whole universe that exists outside of this movie. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one of the key things about this movie is like it's a collaborative effort. Some of my favorite scenes in this movie actually didn't have any acting by any of the major players. Uh, it was it was literally the scenes when Piper Laurie, who plays Sarah, is just walking through her neighborhood mm. and or walking through the bus stop mm-hmm. or the train station. The guy with the handball. Yeah. And, it, and it's just it's just these gentle pans of her environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed more progressive for what we would normally see of a film coming out in this in the same era. Fully agree. Um, and and so it just feels like a soft love letter to some of these neighborhoods in New York. Mm. Um, and I and I I really enjoyed those kind of transitional moments where we're you know we're seeing uh, Fast Eddie kind of force himself into her apartment and they start their you know their quick little life together, but. It is self-aware about it being pr- progressive because the script called for Piper Laurie, her character, to say in the train station when they meet that she's an emancipated woman. Yes, yes. Or is that in the diner after? Uh, that was in the diner. Okay. Yeah. One of the one of the two scenes. So after Paul Newman uh, meets Piper Laurie in the train station after he's uh, gotten obliterated in this pool match, just getting worn down by the gauntlet, he stumbles into this train station. She's sitting there. She's drinking and And it's like, it's like 10 in the morning. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And he falls asleep while they're talking because he's been up for like 48 hours. Yeah. She walks off and then they run into each other again at the diner. And that's when they start actually hitting it off. Right. And she's very blunt. She's very upfront, but it's kind of in this like flirty way of just like, Hey, I just want you to know that like, I am this kind of person. I didn't find her to be very, I found her to be very elusive, but I found her, I found her play with words on the woman that she might be, or the woman she might be perceived as versus a, um, maybe she understands that that's the hat people are putting on her head and then she's, but she's going to maybe wear that as a joke or a farce to fool people. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, like she, so it's not flirty. It's like self-deprecating. Or a like, little, a little yeah. bit, a little, okay. I mean, she is flirting, but so, I, I self-deprecating if you can hang on her level because she's picking her words very carefully. Yeah. She's definitely like toying with it, but in in a sense, like she's being blunt with her own situation to the and, world. And I got a sense from their meeting that she was smarter than him. Like it was clear to me that she was more self-aware and more. Mm-hmm. She's yeah. She's definitely more keen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She, and and more. Yeah. She's smarter because she's more literate. She's more. She's more everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know about. I would say on like sort of street smarts, uh, they're pretty comparable because they mm-hmm. they can both like size each other up pretty quickly mm-hmm. yeah uh i i think she's probably one of the most as far as like when you know we have uh george c scott you know who plays Perd gordon talking to fast eddie about the fact that he has no character i think she might be the only person that has character in the whole film her character stands out amongst everybody else right because everyone else is participating in a hustle in a very obvious way and her character is kind of drifting and doing uh her own thing in a way that's not really demonstrating that she's trying to be the best at something she's trying to make money it, there's almost this indifference to money that she has um that you know she kind of jokes as to whether or not there's this rich old guy that like gave her money and then she you know sells herself out at the end of the movie about you know it's actually her dad who's trying to like pay off having to deal with with her Mm. but i think she's kind of the moral compass or the moral foundation of this movie uh 
as demonstrated by the fact that she's calling out the hustle and seeing how damage, damaging right. it is for him. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that's like the key tension of the whole movie is that you can see like Minnesota Fats doesn't necessarily represent like a dynamic character. He's like Mount Everest. It's like, it's not so much about defeating Minnesota Fats or confronting Bert. The challenge of the hustler is within Fast Eddie. Like it's all inside of him. It's a level of performance that's inside of him that he's chasing. So the real tension in the movie as in terms of a conflict is number one, actually having a soul and actually having a life and like living a life that's like worth it and all that stuff. And that's Sarah. And then there's the sort of self-destructive, callous, cold impulse that only comes from winning hustles and hustling people. And that's represented by Bert. And of course, that in the third act of the movie, when they go to Louisville, uh, plays out explosively. Uh, but for me, that's the tension of the movie is, does Fast Eddie decide that he's going to resurrect a soul or does he completely abandon it and become a cold-blooded killer champion of the pool hall? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of insinuated by when George C. Scott is uh, saying is like, you don't have character. It's not necessarily that Eddie doesn't have character. It's that uh, he's not willing to put winning above everything else in his life. Yeah, I think what George C. Scott, I mean, like another word, a a term that comes to mind when he's talking about character in that context is grit. Because when I think of character, I think more of like a substance, you know, like more of a, uh, if like, I would say like that guy's, he's got character, like he's a solid dude. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he has integrity, which means like he does what he says. He says what he does. Right. So but this, this isn't coming from a, a, a man with integrity. Exactly. Right? So, exactly. so I, mean, I don't think so, he means character in that sense. Yeah. yeah so I, I'd say when, when Bert Gordon is saying you don't have character, you don't want to be a winner. I think that's what he's saying is that you are not, you're like, like Bert who puts winning above everything. Mm-hmm. Eddie doesn't really have the coldness in his heart to do something like that. And though he self-destructs for that first, that first contest or that first challenge with Minnesota Fats. In the end, when it comes to this last game in Kentucky and and Sarah coming down and pleading for him to leave, that's that's kind of his big wake-up calls. It's like, this isn't... To the extent that Bert wants me to go is not a place that I want to be. Mm-hmm. And if this is what the character looks like or the winning looks like, I don't want to go there. But he's not transformed by the end of the movie in the way that we're talking because he stays trying to be the best at something. So he's just showing a different character, how great he is, instead of trying to prove to somebody else through money that he's the best. So it's like he hasn't really learned a lesson. He's like unchanged in a way. I'm going to borrow a line here. So I read this assessment and I have to agree. uh, Quote, one of the few American movies which the hero wins by surrendering, by accepting reality instead of his dreams. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. think that what we see at the very end of the movie, the, the final confrontation between Minnesota Fats and Fast Eddie is that, Fast Eddie has lost his soul. Like he, his heart, his guts are ripped out and there's nothing left and all that he can be, whatever, whatever confusion or whatever conversation he was having before with Sarah in his life, it's gone. And all he can be is like this shadow self that wins pool games. And he does. Yep. And I, I think that's for me is like the sort of the grim reality of this movie. Mm-hmm. And connecting back to the earlier part of what we were talking about. It's like Robert Rawson was definitely interested in the corrupting influence of money. That is a theme that shows up uh, cinematically throughout. You never see Minnesota Fats touch money because he's, he's beyond that now. 
So Jackie Gleason, who plays Minnesota Fats, there's this great moment at the end when he's when he tells Fast Eddie, he's like, "You beat me, kid. It's take it. It's yours." And then Fast Eddie has this whole argument with Burt Gordon about how they're going to split their money, this, this, and that. And you see Jackie Gleason's character, who doesn't really say much, but you see this familiar. Like he's had this conversation oh, yeah. before. Yeah, this he's is... been in that same spot. Right. And he is he's just this broken ballast who is the basically he, at the top of the food chain. He's the gatekeeper. Yeah. And like it doesn't matter. Like if if Fast Eddie or some other guy beats Minnesota Fats, it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. Because he plays so well and so consistently, and he's such an institution as a player that he's like the yardstick by which anyone else is measured. Mm-hmm. And then you realize in that moment, he's really, he's not, he's not this godlike creature anymore. He's, he's also been beaten down by this lifestyle, but he just, he found a way to make it work for him. Right. He's, he's indifferent to the, these, these petty struggles around him because this is a play that he's seen a million times over. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He, you're saying he lost his soul a long time ago. Awesome. Yeah, and you can you can see that there's a there's kind of a grimace of of pain that he's feeling for Fast Eddie as he's kind of going through this big time for the first time. And and I certainly got the impression that you know Minnesota Fats has been in this exact situation maybe a few times mm-hmm. and has been beaten down enough to where he's just kind of in this comfortable place of being. You know, known as the champion player, so he's gonna he's gonna wash his hands and put on his nice suit and wear his carnation, and he's gonna come in and maintain that kind of like godlike reputation for yeah. these other pool hustlers. He was great. I mean, Jackie he Gleason was, so was amazing. <laughs> uh, he hardly moved. Like as we said, it's just he didn't really say or do a whole lot. He made his shots though, right? All and of it, his shots, which are that's so good. But he used to be a hustler as a kid. Like he, he grew up, uh, his, his dad abandoned his family super young. He lost his brother to, um, Bass. some An such, alligator. some such diseases that happened, you know, early Scarlet on that fever. probably so I forget what it was, but anyway, his, his dad abandoned his family. His, this was so tragic. I was reading this today, but his mother had a carbuncle on her, on her collarbone, which is basically like a, it's like, a it's an infected hair follicle. Jeez. And oh. so he lanced it and then she got sepsis. No. And she died. Oh. I know. And he was like, he was like 14, maybe. Oh my God. And then we all love pimple popping on this podcast. We do, but yeah, but oh my God. Can Just, you imagine killing your parent from yes. lancing? God. <laughs> <laughs> but so so then he goes on and he he starts with bull hustling to make money mm-hmm. and then he goes and he starts doing stand-up and he gets starts you know he's he does this like he has this way of doing stand-up where he kind of can really really poke fun at people really easily mm-hmm. and he gets picked up to do shows and he gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then we get the jack and gleason that we all know who later becomes a musician but um kn- he knows how to make those shots i mean he he did it that was mm-hmm. his lifestyle yeah, I as heard a kid, that as a youngster. Yeah, Paul Newman was also making his shots that they they basically tried to play pool themselves, and it was only when they had like those what do they call them masse or the, the trick shots, yeah, that they actually had the uh, movie's technical advisor, multi-year billiards champion William Ascani show up. Mm-hmm. He's addressed by name in the movie. The mm-hmm. guy that they have hold the money with the white hair—that's Willie—and he's the actual pool champion. 
Okay. I was yeah. wondering what the masse shots were because there's a sign that says no masse shots, which is like going to a venue and saying no covers mm-hmm. and not understanding why. Yeah. But you know why you don't do covers, right? No. Because like licensing, you if you do a cover, the venue or the band actually has to cover. Oh, oh, the oh, cost oh, of playing. The covers. I yeah. that's I was taking it too literally. Yeah. I was like, it's a, is there a tent? Yeah. So that that was like a common sign of like probably people who played pool understood what that sign meant. No, right. no stairway. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the Moscone guy, he hung out with Paul Newman for a long time and oh, taught he? him how to shoot. So Paul Paul Newman actually got a pool table and just played over and over and over again. Hmm. So it's a you know, fun. It's a fun game. Yeah, it complements what Allison said about Gleason. Were just you, that both of them are super legit at pool, yeah, which I, I want to play. Have you guys ever been good at pool? I would have these weird moments of being great at pool, yeah. and it was like, you know, you know when that people talk about flow. Sure. Like I, in every time I've ever played pool, I have like. 10 minutes of flow where I can, I can see the angles and I can, I know where to hit the cue and, mm. um, and then I'm a hot mess. And it's, <laughs> it's like, it's like none of it ever happened. So I don't know. I have, but I have this moment of like savant clarity where I can like <laughs> go in and get it and then it disappears really so it's quickly. Like, like the gif with like the equations around your head. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I'm like, I'm like, finally, and then it's something I'm good at. And then yeah. it goes away. How about you, Brady? I, I grew up playing it because my next door neighbor had a oh, okay. table. Um, so you're but probably I, pretty good. No, I, I never, I never felt confident with the spin, oh. right? The front or the back spin or the yeah. curves and stuff like that. That felt like that was the next level, and I mm-hmm. got decent at angles, like Allison was describing. But I felt like having the the stick become one with my hand. I never, I never got there. There's I, nerves. Yeah, because well, I, because I, I, I did the stick through the finger thing <laughs> instead of the <laughs> stick on the finger thing. Ah, so does that, one does one make a difference? This one more stable than the other? I feel like the one that sits on your hand or your fingers is what most people that are any good do. And I that, always did it like this. I always put it on top of my big bony farmer knuckles. Yeah. I, uh, I, oh. So this is a visual, this is an audio <laughs> podcast and I was demonstrating a finger going into uh, a hole. Uh-huh. Like when someone, when someone's asking for sex and they're in third grade or something yeah. when they're like. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's how I would do it. I, I used to cross over my index finger into my thumb to make like a little Y and then I'd put yeah, it there. Okay. And I'd and I'd kind of So you, my... you did it on top of your fingers. Yes. Yeah. Not through your fingers. No. Yeah. And I'm you too, I'm too sweaty. The 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 Talcum? Yes, I would need that. I just it even when I did like strip aerobics for a while, I just I would I would like no matter what I put on my hands to stop the sliding, I would just be like <laughs> <laughs> like all the way back down the pole and I just hit my ass on the floor. So it didn't matter how much stuff I put on my hand. I just, I just sweat. I just sweat. My hands are so sweaty. Sweat. Come on, sweat. Jack control your brains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying, Josh, you put it on top of your fingers as oh, well? Yeah. yeah. Right on top. Yeah. Right. So down. I never, I never was comfortable with the, the stick being on top. It always right. had to go through for me. See, for me, it's like if the stick isn't moving at like a certain speed, if it doesn't feel fluid enough, then yes. I, I don't really feel like I'm controlling it. If it's, mm-hmm. if it's going through, uh, to use your gesture there, I would feel like it's, it's not slippery enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some, some good pool fucking. Yeah. So back when I was like, 
20, 21 years old. I was playing pool all the time. There was like this really fantastic bar in Cincinnati called The Comet, which I think still exists. And I would be up there playing pool all the time, uh, drinking Iron City, smoking Lucky Strikes, and just uh, just playing the hell out of some pool. That's my own. I don't think I was really ever that good. I was just playing for fun, you know, my playing with my friends and whatnot. Smoking cigarettes. Yeah. But in my Girlfriend make- at the times in middle school. <laughs> But we don't talk about that very much because it's weird and creepy when we think about it. Dude, Josh, you would look fucking dope as shit with a uh, cigarette. He does. He does. Yeah. On the on the once in a blue moon that he does. He 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 does the cigarette well. I don't I don't suggest you smoke for health reasons. Oh, no, I, but I, I'm I just love saying the, the occasional cigarette. Yeah. yeah. Okay. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I, I got used to the numbing quality of tobacco on my lip, which is why I was smoking unfiltered for a time. Whoa! But, you know. Oh, my God. The hubris of youth. Oh, holy Wait, smokes. Wait, were you wearing a leather jacket at this point? No, I was mostly wearing like a, a old, like, like, you know, thrift store type shirts. Okay, no. But were there cuff jeans? There were cuff jeans. These were actually like old, um, like, I don't know what they called three stitch like farmer like blue jeans uh, on a scale of like ten to rockabilly hard rockabilly okay. mm. like rock a doodle do <laughs> <laughs> like stray cat strut like whoa going back to the fifties daddy o like oh, yeah. like real rockabilly I still can't believe you don't have tattoos I know right so shooting pool then were yeah. you getting yourself into sketch situations. Or was this always with like friendly? It was it was mostly friendly, kids. but I definitely played some like kind of rough dudes. Okay, and you just gotta just keep it keep it honest, you know. Just play your game. If you lose, you lose. If you win, you win. Like don't. I I was never comfortable enough to do any kind of like hustling. I was shit. gonna say, were Plus, you were you ever like catfish? What's what's the what's the version of being uh, being hustled? I guess uh, you're. <laughs> You you were you ever hustled by somebody or attempted to be hustled where they're like, hey, well, they're trying to pressure you into putting money in because they see you as being weaker than them. Uh, no, no. Mm. Again, I think it was just it was just too casual environment. Plus, nice. like the this was not really a great place to be playing pool. It was too busy, too crowded of a bar. Oh, okay. So it wasn't like you know people in the corners like staring at each other, like smoking cigarettes, mm-hmm. and, you know, sizing each other up. It wasn't like that. Nobody's okay. nobody's thumbs were getting broken. Yeah, exactly. I don't feel like, you know, I, I lived in a place in Utah where there was a lot of cool places to shoot pool. Mm-hmm. Do I, they allow pool in Utah? Come on now. <laughs> We're not Neanderthals over there. I'm not saying Neanderthals. I'm just saying, is it like Pleasantville? <sighs> yes. When you masturbate, everything turns into color. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Yeah, where I, I grew up as a kid in black and white. I didn't I didn't experience color you know until what? I moved I was, to Portland. I was super I was yeah. super aware of my my West Coast um, classism when I was when I was driving through. I was like, "Is everyone racist? Hi." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm from California. How can you tell? <laughs> that's good. That's a good accent. Oh my god, those antlers are so cute. <laughs> I was like, I'm an asshole, aren't I? Is this, is this what happens when people from the West Coast go in, like, into the country? Just, just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Zip it. Yeah. Where's your coffee brewed at? <laughs> coffee brewed. So yeah, I, ex- I experienced I experienced uh, pool halls a bit since we moved here, mm-hmm. and they're always 
I've always felt like shooting pool was an inconvenience for other people there. Oh, like it's this offshoot of like people hanging out and talking or, you know, getting drunk anonymously. Right. Where the pool table is a distraction from the rest of the joint. So you felt oh, like you were gotcha. interfering with other people's nice time by yeah. playing pool. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. We, I mean, I, the bar that I went to nightly in Oakland had a pool table that was often always being used, but occasionally um, we would do doubles. Some, some friends and I would do doubles with it. Um, but that being said, it like those games were long and it's because we were missing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like so drunk that you're like, and we weren't even no, we weren't even that drunk. It just we were just not great at pool. I, I'd have that ten minute window, and then it was that. That was it. Oh, well, backing backing the window up here, the lens up just a little bit more. Have you guys ever conned anybody ever at anything? Have you ever tricked anybody to, to doing something that gave you money? No. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna right. say there's yeah. there's definitely like. I can't say no. I think probably I have. You know what it was. Okay. You know what you know what I used to do is uh, back when I would bartend and one every once in a while, and they were always super young kids. They were always like just turned twenty one or twenty two, and they had come out from the suburbs and they were having a night in the city. And they were assholes. They just they would treat mm. they would treat the bar staff like mm-hmm. we were supposed to like lick their assholes. And I. I remember a few times, you know, these kids are you trying to be nice to your wait staff. You got, you have to be nice to your bartender it's, because we will ruin you. Yeah. So I remember this, this kid who had come out and he was, he was just being a dick and he was, um, trying to like flash all this money. And I was like, wow. in my, in my, in my, I was just like, you're too fucking stupid to count change. Right. So I, I like stiffed him by 40 bucks. Nice. Oh, okay. Cause he, yeah, because he gave me like, he gave me like a hundred dollar bill, and and he doesn't know how much the drinks are. So I, I was like, I was like, cool man, thank you. And I just put that right in my pocket. I, <laughs> just, but, I, but I was like, you're an asshole, and I, I'm sorry, but like, fuck I, you. I take back what I just said. You are a cold blooded assassin. I was I bartending hardened it's, it's my a, heart. It's a righteous sense of it, justice. It hardened my heart. Yeah, there there was. I remember another guy that was like, I mean, this wasn't hustling him or anything, but he was he was throwing money into my well which is disgusting that's where ice goes and that uh, is really gross because he was like yeah, trying that's, he that's was like odd. trying to get my attention so i would i would give him a drink first but there's like a, there's thousands of people around him holy shit. and i and i got so mad and i yeah that's that feels like like you get slapped oh i was that. i was so upset and and i was and so then he started cussing me out because i threw my i threw his money back at him and i told him to leave and and he started cussing me out and I and I was like waving the the um security over and I said, You really want to cuss your bartender out? Because it's really fucking cold outside. And it was like that four years ago when we were having that crazy storm here where it was like ice everywhere. Uh-huh. And I was like, I know you had to walk here because it was so hard to drive anywhere and Ubers aren't doing anything. So I was like, So I'm about to send your skinny white ass outside where you're rolling balls, you motherfucker. I have a lot of rage. <laughs> <laughs> I was so much rage. Right. Yeah, like there's so just so many flashbacks of bartending. Like, That's funny. Ah! Yeah, it was, watch- it was funny watching you get activated. Where you're like, I don't think I have any. I can't think of any story. Oh wait, wait a minute. Here they come. Here they. Come. No, no. It's like it's like vomit when it starts and you can't stop and you're like, oh. No. Uh, well, my my stories are not high stakes at all, Josh. It's okay. like. I, I hinted to the two of you over text, like the fighting game community, you know, so like Street Fighter, oh, Mortal okay. Kombat right. type. So there, there is a really intense, like, competitive scene with those games. 
And so it's, there's a lot of trash talk. Um, you know, Mortal Kombat's based on Scandinavian music, right? <laughs> <laughs> what? What? I'll finish him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry. Please go ahead. Please proceed. <laughs> is is Finland part of Scandinavia? <sighs> sure. I don't know. <laughs> it's all the same over there. I mean, it's I just mean, IKEA and blonde people. I don't know what else to say. I'm, that's Sweden. I'm sure the finisher. Someone really... stop me from talking, Brady. Keep Finish going. Him. Excellent race car drivers. I'll say that. <laughs> some, some of the best. All I know about Finland is that of all the Scandinavian, how did we get here? Countries they have the best. Oh, right. They have the best non-accents. Oh, meaning like when they speak English, it's like yeah, you can barely okay barely tell. So anyway, Street Fighter. Yes, well, Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat. I mean, there's like tournaments and shit. So a lot of those are you have to win best of seven or best of five or whatever. Mm. And so I've I've had those experiences where I will play down. Oh, you'll sandbag a little bit, a little bit. So I I mean, that's not it's not the same. Like again, the stakes are low, but it's like oh, I'm clearly better at this game than somebody else. Uh So I'm going to act like I'm not as good at this game Mm -hmm. because that will improve your your path through the tournament system. No, it's just I like to create drama. Oh, okay. So just be the, be the chaos you want to be in the world. There you go. Create the chaos you want to be in the world. Uh, uh, Finland is a part of uh, Scandinavian region. Confirmed. Mm-hmm. All right. Lock well, it in. I'll mm-hmm. shut my dirty the Scandin- mouth. The Scandinavian Peninsula, if we will. Okay. Yeah. So thank you, Google. Speaking of chaos energy. Wait a minute. You didn't answer. Oh. Did you? Oh. Have you hustled anybody? Uh, Ever? Boy, have I hustled anybody? No, not really. Yeah, I mean, I've I've beat people fair and square, but I I didn't hustled anybody. And I just like I I have this. It's like a dark crystal inside of me that um, has like like secrets written in Italian all around it, and then when it's spaghetti, <laughs> it's it's just it's just Italian hand gestures all around it, and when it's activated, I can't not come after someone for being an asshole. Mm. So anyway, my sense of justice is maybe a little too high. Italian? <laughs> it's a little... <laughs> we're backing down. Yeah, it's too Italian. So anyway. Fair enough. Continue. Oh. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sidebar done. Thank you. Uh-huh. So speaking of uh, dark Italian crystals, um, one of the bartenders in the movie is the real life Raging Bull, uh, Jake LaMotta. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So do you remember the sequence where um, Sarah, Piper Laurie's character, is getting something from the bar and the bartender says, check? Uh-huh. That's, that's Raging Bull. That's LaMotta. Was he into acting? No, was no this- I think it, I don't think I think it was one of those like chance opportunities where Robert Rosson and company were basically filling in the background with colorful people like Willie Moscani, and he was in the mix. I don't know. I don't know the backstory there. Well, so like to me, it's like okay, if he's if Lamada's in this, and Rosson was friends with Eli Kazan, and Eli Kazan is like Martin Scorsese's favorite director, and Martin Scorsese directed Raging Bull. You got to think there's some shit there. Yeah, uh, it's a quantum leap episode. <laughs> <laughs> Every leap getting closer to home. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and speaking of quantum leaps, uh, what did you guys think of 
George C. Scott's performance as mm. Burt Gordon. Oh my God. It was his third film role ever. He had been on Broadway for a bit doing different things, but this is his third movie. And he was in The Exorcist 3. <laughs> Which is his best work. Uh, there are certain folks that just, I think they can tap into something that they they fall into character so well. Uh-huh. And they fall into the nuances and the bad habits and the idiosyncrasies. Yeah. Where they, they become a character through and through and the way he played Bert, Bert Gordon had me really fooled. Cause you, you think he's just kind of this quiet observer who maybe is looking out for the best bet and the best guy who's going to be this really supportive person. And he's a snake. Yeah. And he does it so well. And I thought his performance was fantastic. Did he did he get a nomination for this? I don't know. Which I think he turned down. Uh wait a minute. I think he got nominated for Best Supporting Actor for oh, this boy. and he turned he turned it down because he he didn't like the Academy Award system basically. So I know um I think I think he was nominated. I don't know if he I don't think he he didn't win. He didn't win, but I think I, I don't think he accepted the nomination. That's oh, weird. Yeah. That's interesting. Huh. Uh I believe I <clears throat> I believe it was uh, George C. Scott, but he, he, I mean, his performance is exceptional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right on the money where you think he's going to be like this, like cipher, you know, bean counter, you know, uh, Le Chief type character. And he ends up being this like master manipulator. Yeah. And the whole sequence, basically once Sarah is on the train and they're going to Louisville and he's just like instantaneously going to work on her with all kinds of like minor little head games, like the forgetting the name, taking her seat at the table, all the, the little comments about like the beautiful women and all kinds of stuff. It's like he is worming his way into her head. And that's both credit to the script as well as George C. Scott. Uh, I think that just in general, I think he absolutely killed it. And I wonder how much of this role is George C. Scott and how much of it is Burt Gordon and like where that line lives. But man, he he's wild. It was very obvious to me that his character was based off of like really legit, like corporate powerful people. Mm. Um, just that kind of social engineering that is not easily seen by people outside of the experience like if you're if you're having it happen to you like you can see it but a lot of times it's very quiet and it's just this very surgical thing that if if the person protesting to having it happen to them they'd be like what what are you talking about i don't know what that person's mm-hmm. talking about right. yeah the, right. the negging and gaslighting dude and, it's yeah. fucking nuts and yeah, yeah it, it um you know who reminds me of his character it's um roman roy Kieran Culkin in Secession, okay, is totally his character. I haven't seen I haven't that seen yet, it. but everyone says it's amazing. Oh, dude, Secession's like Arrested Development mixed with. Um, oh, is that the HBO show? Yeah, it's like a super dark, depressing version of Arrested Development. Oh, um, sounds yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's quite good. So, like uh, Roman Roy is this character that seems kind of like a buffoon, not really really taken uh, taken seriously um but really he's a cold-blooded assassin yeah. yeah so he's a little bit more of a buffoon for comedic effect than george c scott but they have a similar look if you if you look at karen culkin you can kind of see the the physical similarities okay. okay but i don't know i the allison you said that you kind of saw him as just taking care of his buddy 
uh, at the beginning of the movie. Um, well, I mean, it, you just, he doesn't seem that threatening in the beginning. I was actually, especially, he, it's almost like he's having a father-son conversation with Fast Eddie at a certain point when they meet each other again before his thumbs get broken uh, or right, right after his thumbs heal and they see each other at the bar and it almost seems like now he's, this is, he's lending the, the ladder to Eddie in order to make huh. his way out of this misery that he's been in. Like he's going to be a really, really supportive father figure and, and then just, just manipulates and uses him in like some, some very just merciless ways. Yeah. He's absolutely cold blooded, completely sinister. I think that he is, um, he is, you know, he's obviously the villain of the movie, but like he, he's, he takes his villainy to such a extreme in the way that it's presented that it's like he does represent like avarice and greed and you know control of the system Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i I saw him as the villain from the first 10 minutes when he cut through like a knife calling eddie a loser Mm. right so like everyone in the pool hall is hanging on every action and every comment by fast eddie and fats but then bert comes in and just calls him a loser and and Paul Newman's character completely gets destabilized. So early on for me, it was clear that this guy is the person that actually holds all the power in this movie, including Fats. In a way, Fats right. is like in his pocket. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that becomes extremely apparent at the end of the movie when Fats is kind of resigned to mm-hmm. watching this downfall of another, you know, bright-eyed pool player. Mm. Uh, just get just get completely fucked over by the lifestyle. Yeah. So yeah, I think he. I mean, he owns the city. Yeah. Bert is Hades and Fats is Cerberus. Okay. <laughs> we just watched an episode of Your Pretty Face Is Going to Hell, where <laughs> <laughs> they they create a giant Cerberus puppy, and and one of one of the heads is like tiny and kind of stupid, and then there's. <laughs> And then there's the two like vicious like attack dogs, but one of is course. like this like chipper little like idiot. And of course, Cerberus somehow accidentally gets killed. And he eats so chocolate. He they eat chocolate. The, the, and the dumb one aw, eats chocolate. Yes, it kills them all. And it kills them all. And so they so Gary Bunda like severs their heads and puts it on a pony and brings it back to Satan, going like, "No, Cerberus is fine." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. most layered and complicated uh, role in The Hustler is, to me, it is Sarah Packard as portrayed by Piper Laurie, because in addition to her being a woman with a hidden history, she's also got a hitch in her giddy-up, and she's got quite the drinking habit. So mm-hmm. we learn a bit about her as the movie goes on, her motivations, Um, what did you guys think of her role? I think she's central to the plot. Yeah. 
I see her as the person who's actually observing and calling out the bad behavior in a way that's not, she's not, she's not moralizing in a way that puts her above people. In fact, I mean, she's, again, she's self-deprecating in a way. Um, but there is an element of progress that she shows in this movie that no one else does, which is she's probably the heaviest drinker, right? And there's that period of time when she stops drinking after she knocks over the bottle, she gets clean essentially for yeah. a bit um, before she dies of drinking to death, right? She didn't, she didn't. No, she, she cut her wrist. If you look at the, if you, in the, the scene, sink. there's blood on the sink. Okay. And there's a razor blade. I wasn't sure because I thought that the first time I watched it and then the second time I watched it, I was like, wait, is she <laughs> It's drink? not, I mean. It's pretty sanitized. It, yeah, okay. it's not, but, it's not very. Okay. It's so, applied. So she cleaned herself up for a period of time and then, you know, she, she hits, she hits the drink hard at the party at the end. Um, I don't know. She's got this really warm presence that really balances Paul Newman's standoffishness. Right. And I don't know how much of that is the script versus acting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's that's kind of a testament to this movie is it all kind of just works in tandem. Right. Yeah. I mean, Piper Laurie is a she's a fantastic, well-trained actor. Mm. Um, and she never really got I mean, this was kind of her only really big role besides playing besides being in Carrie, basically. Uh, Twin Peaks and yes and Twin Peaks but (laughs) she she just didn't have that kind of leading lady quality that I think Hollywood was looking for I mean she 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 has a she has a way of speaking that I think is very adult and um, and it comes across very direct but um, poetic Mm -hmm. Uh, the impression that I got with her character is that she you know, she's older, older than a, a, you know, a single woman in this time living alone would be going to school. And uh, I, th- I get the impression that she was dealt a couple of really rough hands and she's organizing herself in a very isolated way because so much has so much chaos has been there in the past that she she has a routine. She wakes mm-hmm. up, she goes and she drinks. And then the other day she goes to school and if she can't sleep, she'll go out and drink, but it's just her. And her life is wildly in control and wildly out of control, but at least it's her mess. And she doesn't hide it necessarily when she meets fast Eddie, but she can, she can read him pretty quick and she can see what a mess he is. When, when she immediately is like, I know where you live. You live at the train station. Mm-hmm. How does it feel living in that tiny little locker? Mm. So she she's no stranger to disappointment and pain. Yeah, I get the sense that there is some, even though we do learn a bit about her, that there is some kind of like unspoken, unrevealed tragedy from her past that we never really learn about. Yeah. Like what's what's really like the whole broken relationship with her father that, you know, has definitely contributed to some of the drinking, but it seems like there's something more. Yeah, there's there's some melancholy about her that she we just never we never figure out where it comes from. Yeah. But I, I she she's the perfect counterpoint for Fast Eddie because Fast Eddie is kind of circling the drain still thinking he's a bit of a hot shot and she can see uh, she can see his you know his fall from glory and she's she's only like you know she's taken the tiny steps up to like better herself just a little bit mm-hmm. but she might never get there yeah there was that scene in front of her door in the apartment when he takes her home for the first time and he puts the moves on her and she says 
why me? But the way she says it isn't necessarily in challenging him per se. It, it's a bit more of a self-assessment as to why this is happening to herself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he doesn't really respond. And then he tries to make the move on her again. And she says, please, you're too hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually she relents, but she asks these questions or she makes these demands that are never really answered. Right. So I felt like that was a glimpse of a person who kind of understood what they wanted or what was not good for them. And, but she gave in anyway, because there was a sense of loneliness. Right. So she, so he took her down with her, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there, I think that there was, I mean, she recognized right away, you know, um, what was the quote? Look, I've got troubles and I think maybe you got troubles. Maybe it's better off if we just leave each other alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, she doesn't push Eddie. You know, there's, there's many times where he kind of, he kind of pushes her to see like, did you look at my bag? What do you think about this? And she's like, I don't look at your stuff when you leave. I don't know what you do when you go away. I don't ask you. Uh, she's, I think she's just pleased to have, his presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost as if she's like always surprised the longer he sticks around. Like she's never, she never really takes him for granted. Yeah. And like, she's always just kind of like, Oh, I guess you're going to stick around or, or whatever. Yeah. When we get to the point where they go to like the nice dinner at the Parisienne, uh, she suspects that it's a setup for him to leave, that he's going to go to Louisville and she's never going to see him again. Do you think that's true? I don't get that sense. I think that, Fast Eddie was just going down to Louisville for business and then he was going to come back. Oh, I do too. I just think that that's probably what she's used to. Yeah. You know, wine, wine dined and then left 69. behind. <laughs> <laughs> like me, Friday night. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. not, not really. Let me wax my mustache. <laughs> this is going to be a great Friday night. Uh, I'm, at, I'm, I'm out of here. Let's wrap this up. Um, I, I got the sense that it was kind of a nihilistic thing of that he was going to die. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. That he was going to get himself into a really high stakes situation. Uh, Captain Darkness, Brady Kimball. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Murder and suicide. <laughs> Always on the brain. Wow. I, I never, I never thought that. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. so you thought that make sense? So you thought that it, she was it aware. It does, yeah. That, okay. Like you're. You're spinning out of control, like your your path is dark and you're gonna go get yourself killed. Well, yeah, I because think, I think she, maybe because he, he had his he had his thumbs broken at this point and she sees through Bert better than anybody. So the fact true. that he's going to this place with this person who has put him in these high stakes situations. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think he would have gotten in a like a, a like a hot spot where, you know, now he's really like whatever these thugs are, are really gonna come down hard on him. Oh, you know what? You're making me think of something. Because Bert knows everybody in town, he's kinda like the, the the kingpin of this whole situation. Do we think that Bert was responsible for him getting his thumbs broken to begin oh, with? Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You both that's that wasn't just like a chance encounter. Like that was like, oh hey, if you see this guy break his thumbs. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, that was really? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You, yeah. Well, rock well I socks. think I think it says I think there's a moment there's a couple moments where it's absolutely revealed through conversation that he was the one who okayed that. Yeah. He yeah. runs the streets. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause he mentions the guy that broke his thumbs by name. All right. Anyway, you guys are just blowing my mind right now because that, cause I thought that that was fast that he's, he, he was basically chased out all the major pool halls because everybody knew he was fast that and he couldn't hustle there. Yeah. So he had to go lower and lower. Right. And he gets to like this dive 
and he's runs it runs into another hustler hustler crew and then they sort of like let him play his game and then break his thumbs yeah yeah no that was okay. all wow that was all bert so one of the more compl- going back to um piper Laurie and sarah packard's character so she cleans herself up a little bit but then louisville starts where he's got this big game big match whatever you call it i don't know pool event <laughs> pool bout in Louisville against the rich guy Finley, who's also a solid six lawn member, mm-hmm. which is Murray Hamilton from The Graduate. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's right. Mm-hmm. Jeez. The, the dad from Graduate. Uh-huh. So we go down to Louisville and then things get really complicated between Bert and Sarah. So what's Sarah is if, if Sarah can see through Bert, if she knows who he is yeah. through and through. Why is she playing defense so much? Why doesn't she like kind of like what what's her motivation for going to Louisville in the first place if she thinks that that fast is gonna die and like what's going on there? Because I think that particularly the end sequence right before she kills herself, where she's got her, her bags packed or at least on the on the bed waiting for them, that conversation with Bert, then they hook up and then she I'm, kills I'm herself. Still, I'm Man, still not, it's still blurred. I'm me. still not convinced that they didn't know each other beforehand and they and she was just playing dumb. Oh, oh. So that my my because if Bert knows everybody in town and it's not like she's whining and dining in these fancy places, like she, you know, she's she's living kind of a, a, a low level life. Um, and is probably known for being an alcoholic around town. Um, and there's some insinuation that she may have been a sex worker. Right. So I, I get the impression that Bert knows her or they know each other and that Bert is cutting her down and she's saving face and saving face. But I think what Bert says to her at the party when she loses her shit and she throws his drink at right, her. Yeah, we don't get to hear. It's just like, it's silent or what it's I, what I covered th- by the music. What I think is happening in that moment is that he basically is reminding her of her place or where she used to be as a sex worker or maybe one time when they, when he bought her, whatever. I think that there was, there was this moment where he's, he's scratching the surface back to the person who she used to be, who yeah, she's mm-hmm. trying to hide, who she's maybe moving away from. And, um, but I don't, I don't necessarily know the motivation about why she went with them to, to Louisville, except for the fact that maybe fast Eddie was trying to reassure her that he wasn't going anywhere. He was just going to do this, this score and come back. Yeah. Well said. I, I think the only thing i'd add to that is that she probably went to protect him and she was worried about him yeah and probably also worried that he would sell his soul right maybe there was this aspect of her hoping and thinking that she could change him right isn't there always an aspect about changing your man and molding him and punching him into who you want them to be forever until they have no personality left and they make you toasted peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the rest of my life that's our show (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've been molded. I've been sculpted. I've been clayed and chiseled Ooh. into the hunk of a man Ooh. that my wife has made me, if that's Ooh. what you're trying to say. <laughs> yeah. You have to meet your partner where they at. They're never going to be something you want them to be. You have to accept them for who they are. The way that Sarah accepts Fast Eddie. The way that Sarah accepts Fast Eddie. Yeah. And then as soon as you accept them for who they are, that's when you can manipulate them into being who you want them to be. You gotta, it's a long, it's, it's a hustle. A hustle. Hey! hey, we did it. We did it. Oh. Boom. Love is a hustle. Oh. The end.
So back to your question, if I ever hustled anyone. My wife! (laughs) Long con. So Sarah is a drunk. She cleans up and then towards, I guess, Louisville, she starts to drink again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the alcoholism in this movie really stands out to me. Mm. Um, They make a point of it with how fast Eddie and Fats order different bourbons and the way it comes with right. the glass, glass with ice, ice versus from the bottle. Yep. And then fast forward and they uh, Fast Eddie and Sarah meet over alcohol and they're joking about alcohol. They're joking about drinking early in the morning. Um, they have conversations in her apartment about drinking and she writes a story on a typewriter about the fact that there's essentially only one way to go, which is this nihilistic end to their mm-hmm. relationship. Mm-hmm. He sees it on the typewriter and that's when she calls out like, all we do is make love and drink, right? So alcohol comes up over and over and over yeah. and over again. That I think that's another progressive aspect of this movie that you oh, don't yeah. really see. Like I remember, uh, what was the movie? There was a movie from the 40s. Um, it was, oh, it was The Lost Weekend oh, right. by Billy Wilder. Where a guy goes on a binger for four days and basically just you see the aftermath of that experience. And other than that movie, I can't think of anything from that time period that is just that naked about alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. In a way that's nihilistic. Right. Right. Because it's usually like sexy, like smoking cigarettes. And this is like, wow, these people are... These people so are attractive and yeah. interesting and dangerous. And yeah. this is like, yeah. no, this is very much a bad thing right. <laughs> for these people. Yeah, I mean, what was, uh, it was Orgasmo was the the other one where it was like the alcoholism was really, really highlighted. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that was a few years later. Yeah. A little bit later. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good point about the alcohol. And uh, we find out, she says to Eddie at one point that she was injured in a car crash, but then that turns out to be a lie mm-hmm. or perhaps just an embellishment or something like that. And that she was actually sick from polio. Yeah. How did, how did she do carrying herself as a person with a disability? I mean, I assume for the time, it really, really makes her stand out like a sore thumb. Yeah. You know, so uh, going back to saying, you know, she's, she's a little bit older, unmarried, living alone in kind of a bad part of town uh, with an alcohol problem and a limp, like a, mm-hmm. like a very pronounced limp. Yep. And she says, I'm not lame. Or no, no, she says, I'm not drunk. I'm just lame. Yeah. Um, and I I think it is a way to completely remove her from normal society as far as the, the caste system of how women interact when they're in public mm-hmm. and, and what mm. makes what makes a good partner, a good spouse, or someone that who is desirable. Right. You know, but here here is a here's a very emotionally damaged woman. Who is also physically damaged? Okay, so so emotionally damaged that you can see it on the outside. Okay, so it's so. almost like a Bond villain where they've got like a facial scar that like signifies their evil. Yeah, yeah, you know where it just it just signifies how far removed she is mm. from uh, the normal what was expected of women at the time. I see. Yeah, and I think Allison's bringing up a point about just being who you should be, or like the metaphor of just like being open and honest, because the character Sarah talks about. Eddie shouldn't be wearing a mask, Mm. right? She pleads with him and implores with him to not wear a mask. These people wear masks, right? They're perverted, twisted, and crippled. So Mm. she uses the word crippled 
in relationship or in relation to their, these people wearing truth, masks. Right. So even yeah. though she's physically crippled, she still is using this word to attribute to other people. Got it. Yeah. However, she turns those words back on herself at the end by writing them on the mirror to reflect that's actually in how she excellent, feels about it. In excellent lipstick handwriting, which is very hard to do. Mm. I used to write messages to myself, be like, good morning, super fox. You're going to rule this day. <laughs> you get it, girl. Mm, exclamation point, exclamation point. XOXO. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Why stop? I don't know. I just leave messages to Josh in there. Like I can watch you in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> That's our show. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So finally, uh, we got to talk about our star of the show, Paul Newman. Yeah, we haven't talked about him mm-hmm. for two hours. I know, right? <laughs> I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Paul Newman. This was his breakout role. Like he had done some stuff before this and uh, was sort of like acquiring uh, fame and adulation and glory. But really, this movie, The Hustler, is what really broke him loose as an actor mm-hmm. in terms of his ability. Watching this movie myself personally, I think that it's a little, it's a little hammy. It's a little bit strong. But that's kind of like the role of Fast Eddie. Fast mm. Eddie is all piss and vinegar. He's full throttle all the time. And as a character, he sometimes like waxes poetically, like a like a beat poet kind of would might might talk. Uh, and other times, he feels like he's like getting ready to like go knock someone in the face. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's on a lot, and he's also got um, as you mentioned. He's also got like layers of bullshit where he's sort of presenting for certain people. Mm-hmm. So what did you guys think of Paul Newman and his portrayal of Fast Eddie? I, I came across, first of all, Paul Newman is amazing. I, I think Paul Newman is an exceptional actor. I came across this quote that I would just love to read. And it was, among the male faces in the movie, most of them old, weathered, cold, and cruel. Paul Newman's open and handsome looks are a contrast. But the casting is correct. He's not too handsome for this ugly world, but a hustler who trades his boyish grin and ah shucks way of asking anybody if they feel like a game. His face has gotten Eddie almost as far as his pool skills. He doesn't look like the hustler, but then the best ones never do. Yeah. And I I thought that that nailed it. Uh, Paul Newman is a very, very good looking actor, exceptional actor. And I think he plays the levels of Eddie very well. Mm. Um, The, the, highs and highs and the low lows I and he does it with his body language it, it it's pouring out of him he is the character right um and I thought it was I thought he was perfectly cast for it yeah I agree like they, they talk about uh how Bobby Darren was almost cast for this role and, and or Frank Sinatra and I think both of those would have been miscast know, yeah like particularly Bobby Darren I think that he's just to the to the author's point that you just mentioned there I think he'd just be too too cute no, he's too adorable. Yeah. And I think that while that does speak to like the whole, like, well, you don't see the hustlers coming, right? Um, I just don't see Bobby Darren pulling it off. No, he doesn't. The thing about Paul Newman is he has this, he has this kind of like wolfing, boyish, cute smile. Any, Wol- any, wolfing? Like, what is the, what is the term where it's, it's kind of like a wolf's grin? Maybe that's it. I don't um, know. I just never, I've just never, heard I, it for, I was like, wolfine. Wolf, wolf like. It, he has he has a he has a knowing flirtatious playful yeah. grin yeah totally that and and a little bit of a like a sparkle and a wink in his eye uh-huh. so there's this there's this kind of 
uh, uh, trickery and manipulation he does to the people around him. And, I, and it shows up on, it shows up on Paul Newman's face really, really well. Mm-hmm. Plus he's, he's also kind of a silly guy in general, just in real life. And so that, that comes through in the character, you know, he, he seems charming because he is charming. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, so I, I really, really do think he was cast correctly for this. Mm. I, before this did not watch many Paul Newman movies. Um, I had seen him in like Hudsucker Proxy. I'd seen him in um, Road to Perdition. But like a lot of his stuff that he came famous uh, from, like Cool Hand Luke, I watched that this week. Oh my God, I love that movie. Uh, it's great. <laughs> Fucking fantastic. Was that, this the first time have you seen Cool Hand Luke? My, yeah. my Lucille. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, and he was f- fucking fantastic in that. And so seeing this like as one of his earlier roles, to me, it stuck out as a bit flat, actually. Oh. Not in like a, that. that's a pejorative term in a lot of ways, but it's not, I don't mean it as like a, a negative thing. It's more just that his character, I think, was emotionally stunted. Mm. Um, and he plays that fairly well. Right. Now, I watched this movie twice this week because um, I, I decided I want to spend a little bit more time like kind of seeing his body language. Yeah. And there is a lot of frustration that he demonstrated that I didn't see the first time um, that was very much like kind of in the way he moved. So there, there, he was a pretty, he was a lot more animated. He's super animated. Yeah. In a way that I didn't notice the first time Mm -hmm. for some reason, Mm -hmm. probably because I was so like caught up in the dynamics of the group. Yeah. But yeah, just isolating, isolating him. He just is a very frustrated person and character that like, maybe it's like the pulpy kind of film noir style of the writing, Mm -hmm. but it, it kind of reduced him down to, uh, a, he's a bit one-dimensional, actually. Yeah, surprisingly. Yeah, like I found, I found Piper Laurie's character the most robust. Yes, of all characters. I, I I do agree with you. I do agree with you on that. But I guess I guess I get swept up. He's got he's got a way of making connections with the actors around him too. So it, it seems like no matter who he's acting against, there's good chemistry. Mm. And um, and so it just feels it feels more realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to point out too, that the continuity in this movie was fucking great. <laughs> it was so, it was so good. I, I noticed one time, one time I thought continuity may have been a little bit off because the characters moved. No, but generally speaking. Oh yes. yeah. I know the, I know the scene you're talking about. You're, you're, you're back. You're good. You're recalibrated. After, I just, after the last episode, I feel bad for Elaine may. I do. But, but, my sweet Jiminy Cricket, Mikey and Nikki had so many issues for continuity. And this, I, like, I, I cut Joshua right. There's one part where their their body posture changes from one shot to the next, but it was not a big deal. It was so, ugh, what a relief. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think that uh, to build on what you guys are saying, I think that um, yeah, Fast Eddie's character, uh, as like you said, one dimensional, I think that, yeah, he's, he's shot like an arrow. You know, he's like on his way. Everything, everything that uh, stops him is like, you know, an outrageous frustration. And everything that he wants to achieve is like right at his fingertips. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he is kind of a one dimensional character. And I think that what makes Paul Newman good at this is that with that sparkle in his eyes, like you can see like him, him thinking, you can see the gears turning. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have a complicated gestural language for his acting because he is one dimensional. He's mm-hmm. just, he's just, he's a bullet. Yeah. Uh, as compared to say, um, Sarah Packard or, uh, Burt Gordon's character. Um, I thought he was great for the role. I think that 
he has enough of like a working class grit to him. Mm -hmm. He's about as pretty as you can get and still kind of consider yourself to be working class. (laughs) And he has that charm that exudes through him. I think he's just a naturally extremely charismatic guy. Like, you know, when we were talking about The Graduate and how Robert Redford couldn't get the role of The Graduate because he's never been turned down in his life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that Paul Newman, he's just a beautiful man and he's got that sort of just innate charisma about him. Oh, totally. Which I think helps when you're playing Fast Eddie Thilson. Yeah. Which, to validate what you're saying, Josh, mm-hmm. I mean, as a 60-year-old Fast Eddie who's putting the moves on Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, who is with Tom Cruise and The Color of Money. That's right. And he is way more charismatic than Tom Cruise is in this movie, in The Color of Money, the sequel. Uh It's like, okay, like that's when I got Paul Newman, was seeing him as a six-year-old man with Mary Elizabeth. Uh Just being like, okay, this guy, this guy fucks. This guy totally fucks. (laughs) Oh, and in Slapshot, he's still fucking. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so you mentioned The Color of Money. So that is the, it's not necessarily a direct sequel, but it's sort of like a blessed sequel, right? Where No, there was, well. Did you just I make the sign of the cross? <laughs> blessed. Well, I said blessed. Well, I don't, I don't know what blessed means in this case because there was a novel that was written. I don't know if it was written by the original author, but. Oh, so The Color of Money is, is a novel. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So this is a movie directed by Martin Scorsese from, uh, 1986. Oh, I was like, if it's 1987. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he, he returns as Fast Eddie and he is a liquor salesman who's going to from bar to bar and he stumbles upon Tom Cruise as this hot-headed pool shark mm-hmm. and he's watching him just be a total fucking asshole peacock like right. Tom Cruise can be and he's like, this kid doesn't get it. Like, yes, he's winning every single game but he could go, you know, tenfold you know, being the idiot and then coming back and winning. Yeah. And so he takes him under his arm and there's this whole uh, relationship with Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. Mastrantonio? Sounds right. Where she's Tom Cruise's uh, partner, but he's, but, but Paul Newman's trying to teach her how to be a better, they're not called marks. What there's pool slang. The person who basically is there to like distract other people. Oh, actor. So, yeah, the the, char- <laughs> the equivalent of what um, uh, George C. Scott's doing. Oh, the, the plant, of, the plant. Yes, something okay. like that. Yeah. So, so Paul Newman's teaching her how to be the plant, but there's this really weird homoerotic thing where Paul Newman's like trying to teach Tom Cruise, and there's Phil Collins playing One More Night. That are they are they doing pottery together? Is, no, this, is this like some ghost shit where Paul Newman is behind Tom Cruise, like teaching him how to do a golf swing? They're shooting pool. Oh, so he's behind him with a pool stick. No, they're just <laughs> playing pool with Phil Collins with like neon lighting, and it's such an eighties movie. It's so so okay. All right, so <laughs> lay it on us. So Paul Newman's out of the game, right? Like he's moved on. Yeah. And he decides that he wants to get back in the game because Tom Cruise is this little piece of shit. So he's like, okay, I want to like, I'm feeling this competitive spirit with this kid who's going to Atlantic City to be in a tournament. And so to prepare for the tournament to to compete against Tom Cruise, there is a fucking training montage where Paul Newman is swimming laps and goes to the optometrist to get corrective lenses. Yeah, he gets fucking glasses so he can shoot Woo! pool. Okay. 
Better watch your back, Tom Cruise. It's the best, like, I'm coming at you with these fucking bifocals. Yeah. Oh, so this is his training montage. Yes. Like, it's his coming out of retirement. Yes. Like, getting back in the game. He yeah. puts on his Velcro sneakers. Yeah. <laughs> Orthopedic no, shoes. No, totally, that's totally what it is. And it's shot, I mean, it's Martin Scorsese, right? So it's like that rock and roll, like, hey, cool, sexy. And it's like, mm-hmm. dude, this is like a geriatric training montage that I can't take seriously. That's, that's, that's the name of someone's like dad cover band, like dad metal cover band of like geriatric training, training montage. montage. <laughs> Sounds like a playlist I would make. So I, you, you be there. <laughs> we were talking about this movie like a little while ago and uh, you said that it was just like bananas, that it doesn't really hold up or that it just kind of like loses itself. Yeah, it's just it's one dimensional, and for it to be a sequel to this this amazing movie from the '60s, it just felt like this weird '80s buddy rom com uh, thing. How that, do you think it would pair with Cocktail? Pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can see what Tom Cruise was doing with his career. Okay, it's bizarre though because it's 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 because it's Scorsese. It's the same thing. Remember when a, a couple of episodes ago I was talking about Orson Welles and that movie that he didn't finish? Yeah. 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 And people are like, oh, because that movie's amazing. Yeah. I feel like this, this is the same thing where people are like, oh, Scorsese's directing his way out of the bag. And it's like, dude, dude like, he's doing stuff with the, the camera and stuff that's interesting. But like, like the 80s just gaslit everybody as far as cinema's concerned. <laughs> So is that was was that you're finishing your thought? Oh, totally. Allison's. Oh, really? Oh, totally. It it uh it was interesting from like a sh- cinematography standpoint, but uh-huh. it's like he's trying to make up for a script that's okay. pretty mediocre. I just thought, like right. I always I always think about like the passions of what I know about the 80s cuz I obviously lived through them. Mm-hmm. Um were were that you you have this booming economy and then this kind of superficial nature that really really took hold you know you, you have yep. like MTV culture coming out so like all of a sudden you, my boss my boss brought this to my attention that everyone kind of had their own style until like TV showed up and then MTV showed up and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. like there was a everyone had like a category style that you yeah, stuck yeah. with right and I feel like because of that artificial uh, like goo that started emanating out of out of culture everywhere about you know we we have to look a certain way we have to act a certain way we have to be a certain way that when you had overly sincere movies which is everything tom cruise has ever done in the 80s (laughs) it probably felt a lot more powerful then than we give a shit to think about now (laughs) yeah yeah that makes sense somebody email me and tell me otherwise i don't know but that's that would be that's my like assumption because when i when i go back and i watch these movies like born on the fourth of july and i'm like guys i don't see it i don't fucking see it uh, okay so, i haven't seen that Oliver stone movie i mean i thought that uh tom cruise definitely showed up for born on the fourth of july I he think showed that- up for that fake ass mustache that's for sure that facial hair that they put on him was bananas. I like for, I'm just like for as hard as the budget went for that movie and as hard as Tom Cruise acted for that movie, they gave him like some nylon ass shit that they just like spirit gummed onto his lip. And they were like, go act your heart out, young man. Do you think they put go all the, cry on camera? Do you think they put all the budget into the wheelchair? <laughs> Work you like a slave.
I think that's going to do it for the hustler. Um, are you guys ready for reviews? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Who would like to go first? Uh, I will stumble through this. Um, the hustler feels very lived in, uh, somewhat having to do with the set design, but truly due to the ease of the cinematography and the editing and the editing. There are so many peaceful scanning scenes that bring to life the working class neighborhoods of New York and the lives of those that made the world go round under the feet of the, of the upper class. Um, in this environment, we get the lost lives and the kings of this underworld, um, and they're portrayed through this amazing, and they're portrayed through the amazing talents of the cast. No line is wasted, no look is wasted, no part of body language is wasted, and there is a thin line that connects. Um, there's a thin line that connects all of these people together beautifully. It's mm. it's like it's like a perfect ballet. Um, the movie feels really ahead of its time, as far as storytelling, as far as storytelling and cinematography are concerned, and the way in which it was filmed. Like I said previously, I I feel like I can smell the stale beer and the wet carpet and the cigarette smoke and the bad hair hair palm yeah. palmate or whatever and and it feels very real and i think it i think it's i think it's absolutely essential cinema um i would highly recommend it to anybody i'm giving it a 10 oh wow okay. I, I, re- I really enjoyed Damn. it it's, it's essential i don't know how to follow up what allison said i'll just say that like this movie stews in its own juices in a way that not many movies do like you just kind of have to sit with it and marinate in it and for some people it's going to be slow in a way but i i find movies like this to be really rewarding if you meet it at its rhythm because there's a lot of like little clues with body language and just little things that are built into that subculture like we talked about with the the slang or the power dynamics of like who's who has the upper hand or not. Every person in this is pretty much perfect. I think they're perfectly cast. Every every line that they have is like has like a really good zing to it. It's like it's zip zap zoom kind of that again that pulpy film noir style, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which then kind of calls into question the casting. Like how much of it is good acting versus a good script? Again, I said this earlier, but it's like who gives a shit? But it if you're like dissecting the movie, it's like how much of this is the actor carrying this versus the lines the material they had to work with. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But regardless, it, it moves in a way that yeah. kind of uh, is kind of the opposite of that stewing in its own juices. So it's got, yeah, it's got this weird like push and pull thing to it. You know, this movie, I don't think would work without Piper Laurie's character, Sarah. Mm-hmm. She to me is the one that's kind of the anchor to all this. Um, and then Paul Newman, you know, his smile pretty much carries his character. There's kind of this like lovable scoundrel aspect to him. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of surprised this isn't like considered film noir. I don't know if it's like an era thing and like a, it's just the way it's not shot in like this stark black and white style. But it, it has that kind of nihilistic. Yes, but I feel like it's a little too soft. I mean, it's it's not the story is nihilistic, but like the filming is very right. It's it's kind. Mm-hmm. It's kind to the neighborhoods, but not the people. But like there's so I mentioned Billy Wilder earlier, and there's Ace in the Hole, which is kind of considered like a film noir style. But again, that's blown out in an Arizona desert, so it's like mm-hmm. kind of to me, it's it's more I guess nihilistic cinema, which 
I'm on board. I love nihilistic cinema, and there's not going to be a lot of movies at this time frame that have this kind of style. So um, I'm I'm all in on this. I'm going to give this bad boy a nine. Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, so there's not much I can build on from what you guys have already said. So it, it's kind of weird. Like when we score movies, it's like we're not, there's no real objective score. It's like all movies are, are graded against themselves. But like in my mind's eye, the score at the top end, like the eight, nine, 10, it, it moves from a fairly linear scale to all of a sudden it's like the Richter scale. Where it's like every every number is like uh, not just a little bit more, but it's like another. It's like an exponential grade, mm-hmm. you know. So like the difference between an eight and nine is big, and the difference between a nine and ten is huge. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So uh, having said all that, like Paul Newman is he, he may not be like the coolest guy ever, uh, but he's definitely been in some of the coolest movies ever made. I mean, like Cool Hand Luke is an amazing movie. It's super awesome. Uh, Slapshot. Uh, and I, I highly encourage you guys to watch Slapshot. It's a really cool movie. And I think The Hustler is definitely one of the coolest movies I've ever seen, partially because of the nihilism and also because of the the way that all of these component pieces all gel together. Like Robert Rawson is not like an amazing director. He's pretty good and he's a good writer, but he's not an amazing director. So a couple other pieces had to carry some water in order to get us across the finish line this way. And I think that the um, cinematography from Eugene Shufton, the editing from D.D. Allen. D.D. Allen. I'm so sorry, I forgot that name again. And the um, Robert Rawson uh, co-writing the script with Sidney Carroll based on the Walter Tevis novel, all of these amazing performances from Paul Newman, Piper Laurie, George C. Scott. And even though he's basically just like a beautiful painting, Jackie Gleason <laughs> as Minnesota Fats, <laughs> <laughs> all works really well as, as in addition to the colorful background. The the whole thing just works. It's just a, a nice, tightly wound little machine that leaves you with a, a, a sense of unease, but also satisfaction. So like the, you're kind of quaking from like the nihilistic attitude of what happens in the the last act of the movie, but also you kind of get like the small nuggets of satisfaction that I guess Fast Eddie beat Minnesota Fats. Mm-hmm. For me, it is essential cinema and why it's not on like more prestigious than it is, is still a mystery to me. And uh, if you listener out there have a different opinion on that matter, just leave us a message at solid6.net. Uh, but like uh, like Brady, uh, I'm at a nine out of ten. It's it is a damn near perfect movie. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. Oh yeah. So with that in mind, just a quick reminder: uh, we are all on Letterbox. I'm Josh Spaceman. Uh, I'm Bruja Jones. I'm Brady Kimball. And again, if you want to get in contact with us, uh, we are at podcast at solid6.net. We always love hearing from you. You can hit the little microphone button in the corner if you leave us a message. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. I guess we're on Facebook. <laughs> uh, I think so. We I definitely mean, check Facebook yeah. at least. Well, so. I, de- I deactivated we? my account. I was going to say, should Does we any just of delete our... Accounts? No? No, because you can't... If you, I think you have to have a Facebook in order to have a... You have to have a... In, to have a business account on Instagram, you have to link it to a well, Facebook account. So my, that's why my can only be deactivated. I can't delete it. Mark Zuckerberg, you can kiss my ass. <laughs> kiss my ass. So that's a little bit of bookkeeping <laughs> for you, the listener. 
That's, I mean, unless I'm wrong, I, I don't no, I know. Right. I, I think, I think that's the case. Yeah. Well, we do return to the, uh, the nightlife, uh, next time with the, the second movie that's actually based on a New Yorker magazine article that is 2019. 2019. Hustlers starring Jennifer Lopez, amongst others, about a group of exotic dancers that scam a bunch of Wall Street dickheads. I'm very excited to watch this movie. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be great. It's gonna a, be a neither of you have seen it? No, it's no. pretty great. It's I was I, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't I hadn't seen a preview for it and went to go see it with a uh, with Yvonne. It's, it's fucking awesome. And, <laughs> and in addition to your recommendation, I've heard other recommendations as well. That's actually pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's not bad at all. So we're going to get into Hustlers next week. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. And with that, thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Adios. That's what my dad is made. Yeah, I'm a hustler, baby. That's what my dad is made. I'm a hustler, baby.